Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Arc Generation Community Playthrough Wrap Up. I'm your host, Rich, and joining me, as always, are my loyal band of co-hosts, Mr. Jamie, Floyd, and Sean. This episode will be discussing July's modern and retro playthrough titles. On the modern side, we played a handful of PC titles, the ever-so-popular Minecraft, Gone Home, The Stanley Parable, and Dear Esther. And on the retro side, we'll be joined by a special guest this month, you'll have to tune in to see who that is, to discuss the very popular Chrono Trigger. Please remember, if you're looking for our show, you can find us on YouTube or Podomatic, and you can also search for us through rfgeneration.com. Please also be sure to like us on our social media sites, Facebook and Twitter, and follow in the discussion with our playthroughs. Thank you for listening, so let's get to it. Alright, so for the July Retro playthrough, we played the Super Nintendo Classic Chrono Trigger. Um, and joining us on this podcast, we've got a special guest, Mr. Russell Lyman, or better known as Russley Man. <laughs> What's going on, guys? <laughs> and we've got our usual cast of characters. We've got Sean Grey Ghost. Hey everybody, it's Sean Grey Ghost 81 with a brand new microphone and I'm so excited to talk about the best RPG on the Super Nintendo, which is of course Final Fantasy 2. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. It's Mystic Quest. <laughs> We've also got Floyd join us, who was the host this month. Hails from the North. <laughs> and of course, Jamie, our trusty editor-in-chief of the podcast. I guess, uh, Northwest representing. <laughs> <laughs> Represent. So I wanted to kind of start off and um, just all of us kind of talk about, um, I know that Chrono Trigger comes on several formats, so I wanted to talk about A, um, what format you played it on, um, and then B, how you got your game and what the price point of your game was. Because I know this is one of those Super Nintendo titles, as we all know, that's just really been climbing up and skyrocketing. Um, over the past probably year and a half to two years, uh, so I'll um, I'll kick the our guest first, Russ. Okay, so I work at a game store. Um, I now I guess I'll let everyone know I do have the Super Nintendo version, but I've been dying to play the DS version um, just to see the differences and everything. And I was trying to find a copy on eBay, but they were going for so high, and someone happened to trade in a copy at the game store I work at. So I did pick it up there um, for about 20 bucks or so. I think it's going for 30 on eBay. Um, but this copy is missing the cool um, like poster map that comes with it. But that's fine. Mm -hmm. I, I have mine from the Super Nintendo version if I ever want to hang it up. Okay. So that's a, so it's about a $30 game on DS? Yeah, it's uh, roughly going, I, I would say, somewhere up and down between that. With the box saying $30. I think loose, maybe it's about $20 or so. Oh, okay. So there is a cheaper option to play this game, so all of our listeners, um, if you haven't played this game yet, definitely, if you've got a DS, pick up a copy. I've heard some um, really great things about it. Maybe we'll talk about some of the differences in this podcast. All right, so, uh, Sean, um, what are you playing it on? Uh, I played it on the um, PlayStation, okay. which is notorious for being a bad port, but I didn't have a problem with it. This, That's, of course... Um, Included on the Final Fantasy Chronicles collection, which has the uh, aforementioned Final Fantasy IV and Chrono Trigger. 
Um, I just, I didn't know any better. Apparently, the, the, the battles, like before you go into battle, it just freezes for a second. And a lot of people said that that makes it like the worst port and to be avoided like the plague. But I didn't have a problem with it. I, I thought it was fine. Yeah, I heard mention of load times being pretty bad, but uh, it's hard to say without actually playing it. Yeah, yeah. but you get sweet anime cutscenes that you don't have in the Super Nintendo version. Plus, uh, this the Final Fantasy Chronicles is like ten, like between ten and twenty bucks, and you got Final Fantasy four with it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I almost picked it up for thirteen bucks today. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. All right. How about you, Floyd? What did you play it on? Uh, I played it on the uh, DS, so I got the best of both worlds. I got the anime cutscenes from the uh, PS port, and, well, I guess it's not best of both worlds. Well, load uh, times from the SNES. And and that's it. I got the no load times from SNES. Okay, cool. And you got to play it in bed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is always nice. Mm -hmm. I think that's how the only way I finished Magical Star Sign, to be honest. (laughs) All right, and Jamie, how about yourself? Uh, I was the DS camp as well. I uh, picked mine up for about thirty bucks, which uh, is uh, the you know, like Russ said, it's about the going rate. Um, but shipping to Canada makes eBay uh, bump it up to like forty, basically, after uh, all that. So uh, I was pretty happy to get it locally for thirty. Okay, cool. Well, myself, I played it. Um, I actually did not play through the game. Um, this playthrough I, I played it about a year ago so it just um, it's one of those games where you can play through it multiple times and I, and I have played through it multiple times but having been only a year removed I decided that I, I wasn't gonna play it um, uh, again but um, I definitely uh, did a little bit of refreshing on the game to get some of the story um, and you know it's, it's, all, it's all coming back to me as they say so I've got a um, the only the only format I've ever played it on was a uh, Super Nintendo, and um, I got my copy, um, I actually played it when it first came out, uh, believe it or not, um, when I was in college, um, and then um, it, it was actually my roommate's game, so I never owned a copy of it, um, and then um, about, I guess about three years ago, I ended up picking up a copy locally for about 40 bucks at the time, uh, which um, at that time seemed to be uh, pretty expensive. Um, but as we all know, this game's really shot up, and we're looking at, um, it's about a $100 game right now, right? If not more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. All right. So, I know that, you know, I've played this game multiple times. Um, I believe um, Sean has played this game multiple times. Am I correct, sir? I didn't finish it multiple times, but I did, like you, I didn't play it through the for the playthrough, I've played it in the past, um, so my memory is a little fuzzy, but um, I do remember it fondly, and I hope I can contribute a little bit to the discussion here. But I, I actually didn't finish it like multiple times. I only played through it once, but I um, played through it completely. I was saying before we went on the air that I was reading a um, walkthrough the first time I played it that kind of ended rather abruptly and I had to like explore uh, how to complete the game the right way, so to speak. So I do remember that. Right, right. How about you, Russ? Have you played this game before? Um, Was this your first time playing through it? Um, No, I actually played it when it first came out um, back in, what was it, 95, I want to say? Sounds about right. 
Yeah, I was, I, got... in, I was in college, so I believe it might have been a little later than 95. I graduated high school in 95, but could have been. Could have been around that. Was it 95, 96, maybe? Yeah, it was 1995 in okay. North America. Yeah, I mean, okay. I must have played it my freshman year in college then. I still have my box. Like I said, it's complete, like, so mint. Um, because I cherished the game so much and, and enjoyed it. I, you know, I wanted to keep everything pristine and just had a real great time playing through it. I remember I would sketch a lot of the uh, characters in it. Yep. Um, I distinctly remember at the time I was playing it, um, I did a lot of grinding and I listened to um, a Collective Soul album while I was grinding. <laughs> so anytime I hear like, uh, Heaven Let Your Light Shine Down or something, I'm like, yeah, Chrono Trigger. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> and I think uh, you were the one who posted that yeah. uh, really awesome picture of your box. Yeah, I wanted to show uh, people, you know, yeah, I, hear, I do have my yeah, Super Nintendo. I, I said, going online now, like a complete box like this, you could probably get like well over 100 for it. Oh. Yeah, it looked like at least 160, 170. Yeah, what I'd I was say finding. it's probably climbing up close to two. I mean, Honestly, yeah. I mean, you can you can get some really good cash for that game, but you know that's that's the kind of game. Like, I'm not I'm not a box collector. I don't collect cardboard. Don't collect manuals. But um, that's the that's the kind of game. If I found it in the wild, I probably wouldn't flip it. I'd probably keep it in my collection just because it's it's one of those really nostalgic games for me. Um, hmm. And um, I, I think for a lot of other people too. Um, you know, which we'll probably get into talk about it. Um, but before we do. Um, Let's go ahead and kick it over to Floyd so he can tell us a little bit about the game we played this month. Right. Um, so as um, I think it was Russ already mentioned, Chrono Trigger was originally released in 95 uh, for the Super Nintendo. Uh, later in 2001, it was ported over to the PS1 via the Final Fantasy Chronicles. Um, and in 2008, it was put on the Nintendo DS. And actually, the DS version is the first time Chrono Trigger was released in PAL regions. Um, let's see. Poor yeah. Europeans. Yeah, they had to... Deprived of this for so long. I know. Uh, but it, it, it was worth the wait. So... Yeah. Um, anyway, as... Um, it, it, Chrono Trigger is a really hard game to introduce because it has such a, such a special place in, uh, in, in gaming history. And... Um, Really, it's difficult to do this game justice. Uh, anyway, it was produced by the uh, the Dream Team, which consisted of uh, Hironobu Hiro Sakaguchi, uh, Yuji Hori, um, Akira Toriyama, who you probably remember from uh, a lot of uh, early animes, and um, the original composer, I believe it says here, is Yasunori Mitsuda who um, had to relinquish that title late in development due to uh, illness. And the prominent uh, almighty Nobuo Umatsu took over. That's about the best I can do to uh, introduce this, uh, you know, almighty, you know, incredible game. Yeah, well, I think that's fitting, you know. Um, and great job with those names, by the way. I know that the um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking uh, the collect- round of applause. For yeah, that. yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm sure we may get some commentary from the collector cast uh, language police on a few of the names, but uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I just I just want to say, um, and I know they've mentioned us on their podcast. So I just want to give a quick um, shout out to the collector cast. If uh, if any of our listeners haven't listened to any episodes of the collector cast on RF Generation. They, those guys do a wonderful job and put on a great show. So 
if you get a chance, mm-hmm. check out, check them out. Uh, you can you can find them in RF Generation, you know, Twitter. Uh, I know they have a Facebook page uh, and Podomatic. Uh, so be sure to check their show out if you get a chance. Yeah, go listen right now. It's okay if you pause us. We'll <laughs> we'll wait. Go listen right now. Well, maybe that's not okay, but you know, you definitely listen to their show. Um, I also, um, I guess we'll just kind of start off by talking a little about, um, you know, we can kind of get into the story or, or maybe go into the characters. I know um, the reason I was asking if, if people had played before, like I said, I knew Russ had played, I knew Sean had played before, and myself had played before, but um, it's really interesting. This is the first time that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but this is the first time, Floyd and Jamie, you've played the game, right? Yeah, that's right. This is the All first right. time that I've played the game on a legitimate platform. Um, right, right. Oh, right. You're the the big E. Yes. Um, I played this game originally about uh, about ten, twelve years ago at a friend's place on an emulator, and um, oh wow, I uh, I know that's that's a dirty word. You might have to bleep <laughs> that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the furthest I got was um, uh, the the dragon tank. Okay. But, um, yeah. No, that that was enough to just solidify in my brain that this is one heck of a game, and that when and if the opportunity should arise that I can play it, I have to go play this game. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of clamoring uh, from the uh, the collective um, uh, playthrough peanut gallery about uh, playing this game, and you know it's a wonderful suggestion. Uh, we've been playing a lot of RPGs lately. Uh, we've been really knocking some really great ones out, uh, you know, with uh, playing uh, Fantasy Star, we've played uh, Suicoden, we're getting ready to play Suicoden 2, and also Chrono Trigger, so we've been knocking out some real classics this year, um, and it's just been a great time, and it's just wonderful to be able to add this one, you know, during the summer while everyone's got some downtime and can, can really enjoy it. Um, mm. You know, I know that, uh, Floyd, I know, I know you finished the game, Jamie, you're probably going to cut loose a little before we talk about the ending. Because you're yeah. probably about three quarters of the way through, right? Yeah, uh, just past uh, the point where you get kicked out of the Magic Kingdom and those like pyramid things appear on the gates. Yeah. And so I'm kind of hoping to drop out around that point just so I can avoid the major spoilers uh, from the ending discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess we should start talk start off maybe talking a little bit about the characters in the game. You know, you, um, and I know Jamie, you've gotten that far um, as far as the um, the, the playable characters, I guess I should say, that you pick up. You've got um, you've got Chrono, and please correct me if I say these names wrong. It's um, I've always pronounced it Marley, uh, Luca, Frog, Robo, Isla, and Magnus. Uh, I hope you've made it that far. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I haven't made it that far, but oh, I kind of no. spoiled myself on it. No, it's okay. I spoiled it already for myself when I was looking at the thread. So, okay, okay. I thought, I thought you okay. made it. All right, all right. No. So. Um, uh, and I was going to say on the, the pronunciation, I always said it uh, uh, kind of like Ayla. Uh, for Ayla, yeah. Ayla, uh, Ayla, Ayla. It was kind of interchangeable for me. And then also um, Marl sometimes yeah. instead of Marley. I, I was never sure on that one. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you've got, you've got different characters and you've got different styles of um, everyone sort of suited to different roles, I guess, you know, it's typical with an RPG. You've got some that are healers. Um, mm-hmm. You've got um, Marl, who is a, is a healer, and then you've got another character who later in the game earns some healing attributes, and I, I won't spoil that for you um, if you haven't gotten there yet, but everyone has their own, like, special um, 
means of damage, you know, special ways to equip different weapons and things of that nature. So I wanted to maybe kind of touch on that a, a, a little bit, you know, just kind of briefly. So For myself, I found that uh, the characters were pretty evenly distributed with the abilities they had. I mean, Marley was uh, obviously a bit more of a straight-up healer, healer and um, Luca was a bit more spell-focused. But otherwise, I found everyone was kind of... Uh, closer to a typical warrior type, and uh, just with a lot of magic added on too. Like uh, I, I found uh, except for Marley, most of them were a little less defined mm-hmm. in terms of their roles. Yep. Yeah, just just typical. Like a lot of them, sort of just damage, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. There, were, uh, it seemed like there was a lot of tanks and uh, magic users. There wasn't anyone who I considered just to be the sole mage kind of, mm-hmm. uh, and then there wasn't like a. Uh, just a basic fighter. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone kind of had a mixing of the roles, except for, I'd say, Marley, who seemed to be the only real white mage sort of character. Right, right. And everyone could use magic, um, and everyone yeah, exactly. had a pretty much an, an associated type of magic, right? And magic and magic type play a pretty big role in this game, especially when facing certain enemies, right? Mm. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think Chrono was associated with um, lightning. Of course, you said Mar- Marl. Uh, was the healer, um, you know, so the white mage, uh, Luca with fire, uh, frog with water. Um, what was what was Robo? Was Robo lightning also? Is that is that he, right? He Am was I... um, ended up being similar to I guess dark, like dark matter. Did they say something like that? Mm-hmm. Or shadow. shadow. That I was think it. So. Yeah. Right, right. Shadow magic. Okay. Yeah. Since he's a okay. robot, he doesn't officially get but magic. He didn't have. Yeah, he didn't have any official magic attack. Yeah, and then Isla uh, was more of a a barehanded sort of warrior, right? There was no, mm. as far as I remember, there was, there were no, um, weapon equips for her, right? No, yeah, it was all armor. hand on hand. Yeah. yeah and, uh, no magic either because, uh, when you, uh, took her to that God of War or whatever he was called, um, he just said that, uh, sorry, you were there before magic existed, so you couldn't use it. <laughs> Good excuse, right? Yeah. <laughs> but she did have one special ability that I do want to talk about, and I think it's very important to the game, and, um, especially toward end game, is is you're able to sort of poach, um, you know, different items off of people, and that was the ability of charm. So, um, um, Floyd, you want to talk a little about that ability? Did you use that ability? I did not. Um, I, I I picked up her alluring top, <laughs> and but I, I I never used charm. Um, I mean, I have to divulge a bit of a secret here, and that it is that I used a walkthrough primarily to just set up the uh, checkpoints for the uh, for yeah. the month. Mm. That's but, understandable. Like, I didn't look at any boss strategies, mm-hmm. but um, I did have some wandering eyes, and I looked at you know their their stats, and no major bosses had any um, enticing charm items that I really wanted to get off them. So I was never motivated to. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that right right there was i know i know toward the end and as you're um we'll, we'll kind of talk about the setup of the game but um in a little while but toward the end as you're you're doing sort of the side quests and stuff there's there's some of the um i guess trash mobs that that have some you know rather specific and rather decent items on them that you can actually pick up through the game um you know using the charm ability but you i, I guess you kind of use it for I mean, I mean, it's good to have, but at the same time, you, you kind of give up that ability to use um, specific magic or more of the... Um, I know that she does have the ability to, to do combos, uh, from what I remember, but you, you do lose a little bit of 
um, that magic ability and ability to damage, you know, certain characters that are associated with, uh, you know, certain magic, uh, whether it be, you know, fire, water, lightning, you know, some mm-hmm. of some of the magic does a little bit more damage or significant bit more damage to, um, you know, some of the enemies. Yeah, I found her. Um, was was it called? Uh, I want to say cat attack, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that one where she's jumping up and like scratching people with her claws basically and uh, i uh, found that was uh, pretty powerful like uh, at the time where i first got it it was one of my strongest attacks and they didn't even use magic at all or uh, i mean well it used magic points but it wasn't technically magic okay yeah and that that was a really useful move especially against um azala is that its name azala yeah, that's and, sort of the uh, uh, tyranno stack characters <laughs> yeah you know like from land of the lost you know the lizard people yeah 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 so um, I guess we should just roll that into talking a little bit about, um, you know, kind of combat. Um, you know, you have a, um, a nice cast of playable characters, um, seven of them in total, but you're limited to how many you can use at a time. Um, mm. You can only use three at a time. Uh, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, whether Do you ever feel limited in that respect? Was it, um, you know, was it something that worked well? Because I only played the uh, DS version, so I can't speak about the um, Super Nintendo cart. Uh, could you um, swap out your teammates at any time? It wasn't on the fly on Super Nintendo. Um, right, well, not on the fly, but if you were on the world map. I don't believe so. Uh, from what I remember, it was just at, um, you could do it, um, you know, sort of midway through the game, you, you open up the end of time, mm-hmm. and I know you can do it there. And that's where you have to do it. Is the DS different? Is it a different version? You're able to do it sort of on the fly. Yeah, you can do it there as well. But uh, you Hmm. also have an option in the menu where you can just go change party and it instantly changes the person. Yeah. Hmm. You could do it... um, As long as you're outside of battle. Yeah, as long as you're outside of battle, you could swap your party members. I would say, except for uh, certain side quests or um, specific plot points, my team consisted of Chrono... Uh, Luca and Frog. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was my most well-rounded. Um, you know, I like he had that balance between healing and uh, and heavy hitting, mm-hmm. and it it got me through most of the game without any trouble, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I do yeah, like Frog that. does have a little bit of heal. Mm-hmm. Sorry, oh, no. Go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say I do like the fact that when you're um, battling people. And you get your experience points. It does go to other people that aren't currently in your group, so everyone can level up equally, so to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always like that when games do that. Yeah, that is nice. I know with Sui Code, and we that that doesn't happen, but they they do have a leveling system that's implemented where you can level up people rather fast, you know, um, through other battles. But but yeah, that that's very nice. I mean, just to be able to, you know, not have to worry about like well. I could really use this person right now, but in order to do that, I'm going to have to go back and do a little bit of grinding, you know, in order to be able to use this. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, for the experience to go up, you know, as you're playing, that's um, that that's a fantastic attribute to this game, and I think something that they really hit on and did right um, that a lot of RPGs weren't really doing at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. It just saved yeah a lot of time from from excessive grinding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny that uh, Floyd uh, used Luca as your main, uh, or one of your mains, uh, towards the end, anyways, uh, because I think someone else mentioned that too that that was one that they used. Mm-hmm. I found Luca really weak for myself. I don't know 
if maybe it's just because I'm not that far into the game, or if later on she gets better. Well, Luca's nothing special until she gets, uh, I believe it's called Fire 2. Uh, oh, okay. and, and once she gets that magic attack, she will become quite invaluable. Okay, yeah, I haven't gotten that far yet, so maybe that, that'll, my opinion mm -hmm. on that will change when I get to that point. But yeah, at this moment, most of the time I'm using Chrono, um, Frog, and Robo, or sometimes Chrono, Isla, and Robo. Uh, I will only use Marley if I'm going to a boss fight, and I really need a lot of healing. Mm -hmm. But otherwise she's pretty useless at actually fighting, I find, except for that um, Ice Sword uh, combo. Yeah, yeah, there and there's a lot of people who, you know, this is one of those games where it's not necessary to bring a healer along. You know, you can, um, yeah, exactly. You, you know, as far as the items are concerned, you know, you can, you can load up on items, you can carry enough pots that, that you'll be fine. And you can, you know, you can heal that way if that's the way you choose to go. Um, I mean, it's always nice to have a healer, whether it's just, you know, if you get, if you get in a jam, you know, and from what I remember, um, I was sort of the same way. I believe my, my in game, um, for this game years ago was Chrono, uh, Frog, and uh, Luca. I remember having Luca in the group as well. It's it's a rather balanced game. I guess that says a lot about it is that, you know, you can kind of switch party members around and no matter how you swap it around or who you prefer to play with, you know, you can still you can still move throughout the game. You're not necessarily limited, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that speaks a lot to um, this game and, you know, really how good it is in having that ability to switch back and forth and you know mm -hmm. as you know with, with rpg some people just have favorite characters they lock on to whether they're you know great characters or not you know as i think as sean mentioned one time uh in the uh sui coden playthrough he had one character he just thought he just liked the animation you know and just thought she was a cute character i can't remember <laughs> who it was sean but uh yeah, it was uh, Meg, but I had the same thing with this game with Marley when I played it because I thought her sprite was really cute. So, yeah, and I actually had kind of a crush on Marley, which I think she's kind of de uh, designed to be that way as, as like the love interest uh, kind of works very well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the girl next door. <laughs> <laughs> she she's the she's the Daphne of the group, whereas Luca is the uh, Velma of the group. Of course, right? <laughs> I like that comparison. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, we we spoke a little bit about you know combat. So, like, if you guys just to talk a little bit about combat and just uh, yeah, um, use of the I turn one thing. Okay. Uh, uh, sorry, that's uh, one thing I wanted to mention. Um, I guess it's a little bit story related too. But uh, when I got the Miramasa blade for Frog. I was very disappointed in it. Like, it had been built up so much in the story, and then you get it and you start using it, and it's like, this kind of doesn't really do much more than Chrono's main weapon right now. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be some major legendary weapon, and I was pretty disappointed. Like, the the damage it did was not that impressive. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you guys thought. But... I agree. I've, I've heard that complaint before um, from, a lot of, from several people who've played the game. How do I say this? Stick with the game? If you do some of the side quests, there's specifically, from what I remember, there's okay. a, there's a side quest that will enhance that. Well, I, I did pick up the hero's badge, which improved the critical hit mm -hmm. uh, chance, which does help it's, a lot. It's a lot right. further down in the game um, to really, yeah. I guess, so to say, to unlock yeah. the full potential. Um, so okay. it's kind of ca so it's capped, it's capped like right now. But once you unlock, then yeah, it's pretty much his his best weapon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And okay, um, it does have. Uh, a very special attribute when battling a certain boss. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it does come into play. It comes sort of full circle. But I, but I definitely understand like your critique at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And as you first impression, as you get, yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people do have that first impression of that sword. Um, you know, when a sword's got a name, I mean, you expect it to be pretty awesome. You know, pretty rocking. But uh, yeah, but, everyone in uh, the town around there was uh, like, "Oh, this is the legendary blade right, the hero's yeah. gonna save us all." <laughs> and you get it, and it's just like, "This is it." It's like maybe <laughs> maybe they, they built it standards. up. I think they built it up too fast, maybe for it, or so I your expectations so, yeah. are like, "Yes," and then you have to wait longer for the payoff. Hmm. Right, right. Maybe a little bit more storyline to be implemented at that part to, uh, you know, give some indication that. Um, you know, that it would grow in strength right, or yeah. something like that would have been, mm. uh, you know, more appropriate. But, um, you know, just to uh, to forge it and put it back together is, uh, you know, it's not an easy task. And, and like you said, Jamie, you know, to, to go through all that, you know, th- that journey and to get it and it not be as good as something you just find in a treasure chest out in the woods uh, by Chrono. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. yeah it, it, you know, for it to be a legendary blade, you know, it, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, it has all that much value in the game, but but it does, and it, it does get better. Um, oh, maybe so. us 90 right. kids have just been spoiled by Sephiroth's Mesomoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, I guess that's something to talk about. I've, I've, I've heard this, the name of this sword several times, right? Is it is is this the name or variation of this name in several different games? Um, I, I would assume that um, Masamune, or probably uh, more accurately pronounced uh, Masamune, uh, yeah. has some significance in uh, Japanese um, culture and, and folklore. But uh, I haven't really looked into it, so I wouldn't know. Well, it'd be something nice to add to the show notes, or if mm-hmm. anyone actually who's listening to this um, has any um, thoughts or ideas on that, it'd be nice to see those in the forums. Uh-huh, if I may. Oh, well, um, wait a minute. Stand back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Goro Nayudo Masamune is widely recognized as Japan's greatest swordsmith. Okay. There you go. According to Wikipedia, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> also, I just realized as you guys were talking that I totally screwed up and was calling it Muramasa at first, <laughs> which is our August playthrough game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, well, I was thinking of that as well, you know, when I was, uh, you know, as we were talking about it and as I was writing my notes down for the show, I, you know, that, that obviously popped in my head. Um, you know, like uh, Brave Fencer Musashi, I think, has a similar name sword in that game as well. If, if I recall, I could be completely off base and someone can definitely call me out on that. Well, you know what? I'm, look, I'm looking right now, actually, Jamie, that... Um Masamune was Muramasa's master, so oh. they were they were buds, and they're both legendary Japanese swordsmiths. So they're oh, I see that. Yeah, I'm therefore, their now. names are widely used in Japanese RPGs for swords. Wow, wow. Huh. nice, good to so know. There's a connection there. Yeah. My mistake has a connection. <laughs> there you go. Knowing's half the battle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so something else that this game featured and I'll, I'll get some of you to talk a little bit about this where um, you know we, we mentioned that you know there's combos and we'll, we'll get to that in a second maybe some of you can talk about your favorite combos um, but there was um, there were tech points in this game so can someone just kind of briefly describe what those were and how they're used in the game uh, sure um, the tech points were basically um an additional form of experience that you would gain after battle. And these tech points were solely for um, 
learning new techniques. So basically new magical spells, new um, special attacks. And, well, of course, like any progressional type thing, certain moves can only be unlocked once you have reached a certain um, number of tech points. Okay, cool. So, um, as far as the story um, of this game was concerned, actually, before we get into the story, and we don't want to get too deep in the story, but um, I want to talk a little about a little bit while we're kind of on the subject of weapons and armor and items and um, things of that nature and things that, you know, sort of things you picked up during the game. Um, my, my sort of opinion of the game was it, it had a really good flow. Um, as far as the items you would pick up, it just seemed like you would just sort of naturally walk in, you know, if you would do enough dungeon exploring, um, you know, it wasn't that difficult Mm. that you would continually sort of upgrade your item, which was, which I always feel like is really nice. Kind of one of these people that enjoys the continual upgrade of items and, you know, um, and it seemed to have a very natural flow where you weren't running into um, items that were not upgrades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything about this game was so um, incremental. I mean, w- with every uh, major plot point, you pretty much received a new set of armor that would prepare you for the next upcoming battles. Mm. Yeah, It didn't feel like you're doing a bunch of trash that you're just going to sell every time you pick it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the game also implemented um, a strategy with um, tabs. You know, there were there were different tabs that you could pick up. Usually, you would sort of find these on the ground. They were just kind of you'd see like a little flash, and you would just go over to the area, um, stand on top of it, um, hit your um, sort of action button, and you would just pick it up. And um, these tabs were sort of like um, uh, you would use them to make your magic stronger, your attack stronger, uh, your defense stronger, just whatever the the tab specifically notated as approving your ability you could just put it toward uh your characters correct yeah they're just permanent buffs and Mm -hmm. actually i'm remembering there's one towards the end of the game there's an enemy that you can grind on that drops a strength tab i think and you can actually Mm -hmm. like max out your strength just grinding on this one enemy yeah yeah i think that was in um oh gosh i can't i can't think of the name of it It was like the, the the kind of the dark tower or whatever it is sort of the uh you know, oh, the, the last Omen. area. Oh, Black Omen. Black yep. Omen, that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, before um, before you get to uh, Lavos. Well, I was I was grinding a, a whole whack of uh, turbo ethers there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, 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 I was too. not under-equipped for the final battle. <laughs> I think I had 77 yeah. that I had grinded it from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's important to know that that's, it's good not to be under-equipped for the final battle. Um, I'm not spoiling anything for you, Jamie, no. but... Boy, it is a long final battle. I do remember that about the game. It, it mm-hmm. takes a long time. I think the first time I played the game, and I, I probably wasn't as well equipped as I should have been the first time I played through it, but I I specifically recall that last battle taking me over 45 minutes. Oh, wow. That's nuts. Yeah, it, yeah. it took me a really long time and uh, probably four or five tries before I finally completed it. Yeah, yeah, same here, same here. But I, I remember... I remember that battle specifically taking 45 minutes to beat. Wow! And um, I, I don't know if that's that just says you know I'm you know I probably I probably was there too early or you know I, I'm curious that you know how everyone else finished the game is did it was that similar to what everybody else experienced or was that just just me? I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself on that, but no, it's a it's a it's a epic battle. I think any way you slice it. 
it's yeah. it's not easy you know yeah 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 it's you, pretty, you, you um, definitely feel like a champion oh. when you beat this thing absolutely absolutely that's a good way to put it i'm looking forward to it yeah, yeah. um yeah. I, i'll just warn you um the final final battle is very deceptive and um you're going to want to pay attention to um uh i think the background um uh image is a bit of a tell for uh, for the final boss so you know okay. pay attention <laughs> um one thing i noticed that you guys were talking about earlier uh, with the uh the tabs you call them mm-hmm. um is something i kind of heard about uh, that the ds version changed uh is uh, item names and weapon names i think i think uh, they changed uh, they might be called capsules in um yeah yeah they're capsules yeah. in the ds version oh wow and uh, i found that kind of interesting that they changed things to that because to me it's one of those things where i just wonder why like uh, it's kind of a very superficial change and I don't know what you guys think about that, but uh, yeah, there's the strength capsule and the magic capsules where what gave you the upgrades there. I mean, it sounds like it makes more sense. You would like eat a capsule rather than like a tab. Like you're like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the newer one does make more sense. Yeah. But I just want, uh, it's one of those things where you wonder like, did this really need to be changed? Like, was there anything wrong with the original? The only thing ingestible that I've ever heard to be referred to is a tab, which I'm sure tab was just short probably for tablet. Right. right. Yeah, that actually makes sense. But uh, the only thing I've ever heard called a tab was a- is acid. So maybe there's some sort of maybe they're afraid. Uh, you know, maybe that, that, that's might kind take... of what popped in my mind too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, d- I well, didn't want to be the did, one to boy. say it. <laughs> I was thinking of the soda. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. yeah. Hey, tab hey give me a tab. <sighs> hey buddy, you want a tab? You got to order something. <laughs> maybe they maybe they were thinking of potential lawsuit maybe they were uh maybe they're worried about that you know where they uh they did yeah. the remake of the game and um uh you uh you mentioned pots too uh which in the ds1 are called potions okay um obviously pots sounds like an abbreviation for potion but uh, it just makes me think so were most of the item names shortened in the snes version like uh, were they all kind of like four letters long uh didn't didn't uh the snes have um like a um a letter cap for for names i think so for the names of characters but i wasn't sure about the items if that was the same thing <laughs> uh, i i can't speak on that because I, I don't remember again you know it was you know it's been over a year since I've, I've played the game and you know for me just referring to it as pots is really just something that uh, i guess is an rpg game player it's just sort something i've always referred to you know i just i just kind of have used that terminology um, you know, just just pots instead of potions. So just well, shorten. Well, uh, us RPGers, we have our own lingo. You know, grinding and right, all that stuff. Right. Absolutely. I, I think I started on a bit of a, a casual RPG because the first major RPG I can remember playing is like Pokemon. So uh, that had the full name potion, and that's kind of what I grew up with. Right. Right. Yeah. I, it's I, I sort of just recall that, and I guess you know it could be it could have something to do with the with the um, you know the space in the name caps. I, I do remember Fantasy Star playing through that. There were um, a lot of the names of a lot of the items were, you know, definitely shortened. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even the spells. I mean, that was one of my main gripes. If I had any gripes about Fantasy Star, uh, was that just by the description and just the, the abbreviated description, I really didn't know what the spell did. You know, I really had to use the manual for that, and that was a little aggravating at times because I could always like, um, you know, I could always just kind of juxtapose whatever I thought it could be. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and it would be completely wrong. It wasn't quite as straightforward as Final Fantasy's like lit to or cure or heal or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are those are pretty straightforward. So, um, but but yeah, I again I can't I can't speak to 
kind of get back on track. Well, while, while, while we're on the topic of um, like different names of stuff between the games, um, Chronos Move, I believe it's Confuse on SNES and Frenzy on DS. Mm-hmm. Can anyone confirm that? I don't think I've gotten that move yet, so I can't say one way um, I do have one that says Frenzy. I can't remember what it was on SNES, though. Oh, okay. Again, it's again, it's been a while. I don't recall really the spell list on that, so I can't speak to that. But, you know, hopefully, um, again, someone can maybe do a little research and put that in show notes. So it'd be nice. It'd be nice to kind of, like, put the game side by side and kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know... Maybe see if you can find a list of changes. Right, right. So... Um, I guarantee you there are websites that have done that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, there was some talk on the forums. Um, I did not write down any of the exact quotes. I, I typically do that when we, when we have our podcast, but I remember someone uh, talking about um, just kind of the story of the game um, or how the game's set up and that it's very linear, but it doesn't feel like it's a linear game. This is, mm. And I just wanted to touch on that for a minute and kind of uh, get your thoughts on that sort of quote. Well, I can't uh, say anything towards late game, but uh, to the point I've played up to, I kind of agree. Like you're directed along pretty uh, thoroughly through uh, certain areas, and you're restricted from other areas pretty well. I mean, once you get to the end of time, you can go mm-hmm. anywhere, but it, it still feels like some places don't really have a whole lot you can do besides grind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it seems like uh, early on, at least, there's not a huge amount of side quests to do. Mm-hmm. And and I I think. Um, linear games get a bad rap and that's just because of a really poor definition of linear um Mm -hmm. every game out there unless you're playing like heavy rain or or the walking dead almost every game is linear um yeah it um in the case of chrono trigger um it's it kind of gives the illusion of not being linear because you can kind of do things out of order you can um get uh, characters or items um, in, in a unique sequence. Um, but everything is moving along from point A to point B to point C. Um, and I, I think why people dislike linear games, um, the, per, the, the only example that I can think of when, um, when people bring up the linearity debate is Final Fantasy, or should I say Final Hallway 13. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because... I, I I think when people are playing RPGs, they want to have that just vast expanse and like that total openness of, of and freedom of being able to go anywhere they want and, and do anything in, in in the order that pleases them. And restricting them to a certain path to some players will um, hinder the experience. Yeah, I, I've never really uh, liked that opinion. I don't know. Uh, I I always find it annoying when someone's like, uh, oh, this game isn't open world. Well, it must suck then. And mm-hmm. I've heard people say that, and non-ironically. <laughs> and it's just like, well, uh, most games, like you said, they aren't non-linear. Most games are linear. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't really make it a worse game for it. I mean, uh, most Mario games are uh, more or less linear. Right. And, uh, like Zelda games and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and those are some of the best games made. Well, Z- Zelda, I mean, like, this is going to take us off topic, but uh, Z- Zelda has this <laughs> weird 
like it's linear and not linear at the same time. I mean, I'm talking about the uh, the very first Zelda. Uh, like in that okay. that game, you can do things out of order. Um, I yeah, think it's, I mean, even Ocarina of Time as well, you can do the dungeons out of order a little bit. Could you? I, I, it, it seemed to direct you in a general direction. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's been a number of years since I played Ocarina, but uh, um, it, it seems like um, Link to the Past is where they set up that structure where, like, even though you can explore the world, we want you to go to this temple, and then that temple, and then that temple. I can't really say on Link to the Past, I don't have as much experience with that, but I know Ocarina of Time, uh, you can do water and fire temple in any order and then uh, spirit and shadow you can do in any order but otherwise yeah you have to do everything else in in the set order yeah i i, I agree with what floyd said about chrono trigger is that you know it, it is linear in the sense you're you know you begin from the same place and then you're ultimately going to a specific end goal um i feel like with with this game it i would say it's sort of divided in in sort of halves and it's you know, the, the point before you're kind of getting to the side quests and then the point where you get to the side quests, because the side quests are very, I would say, very non-linear, um, you know, broken up into that, you know, if you're breaking it up into sort of portions. I'd say mm -hmm. it's sort of the first, I don't know, I guess it would be around two-thirds of the game, um, is fairly linear, but the good thing about the game is it never makes you feel like it's linear, you know? I mean, you know, you, you, know, you got to do one thing and then the next, and... And that sort of thing, but you'd never feel like anyone's holding your hand through this game. I didn't. I didn't think. And um, I think Jamie had mentioned. I'm. I'm sort of. We were speaking for the call. And he's like, "Yeah, I remember speaking to one guy, but I'm kind of lost now." So, you know, um, you know yeah, that exactly. <laughs> that sort of proves that yeah, it, it's linear, but it's not going to hold your hand. And I think, as a gamer, I think I really appreciate that. Um, I, I don't like games that you know really hold my hand and push me like in a specific direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's that's what makes this game good. It is linear, but it's it's done so well that it you never feel like it, right? It mm -hmm. it's focused and and, and really yeah. directed in in a certain way. And um, you know, I, I I think I would rather call it that than linear. Yeah, yeah, sure, that's fine. We can do that, Floyd. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, another you know the the game is broken up into um you know, different areas of time. There is time travel in this game, which is, you know, just makes it cool. I, I really enjoy that about it. Um, several games that are like this, um, you know, specifically for the Super Nintendo, um, um, Secret of Evermore is like that. There's a, there's a lot of time traveling in it. Uh, it's cool because you've got these different boards and these different sort of settings that are sort of established, different um, parts in time, and What's really cool about Chrono Trigger is that you visit, you instead of going like from one world to the next, you're going from the same world in one portion of the game to another portion of the game. So you can leave stuff behind, like let's say in like 65 million BC, and then find it in like 1000 AD, like that same item you can like dig up. And that happens a lot during the game. Mm -hmm. And there's 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 some elements of the game that are sort of time-focused and things that have to develop over time from the past to the future, right? And I just want to kind of talk about that. Yeah, I think there were some, uh, like the, the, some items that were within those magical seals that if you did leave them behind in the past and then went to collect them in the future, yep. they would be more powerful. 
Yeah. Yeah, Jamie, if you that that's kind of like a good little point there and and something you might want to think about as you're playing through the latter half of your game. Um if you can if you find an item and it'll ask if you want to open it up or not and if it's in the past, if you have a chance to say I, no. I think <laughs> say yeah, say no. <laughs> yeah, don't, um, and don't then give into that you temptation the to future, just loot everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's sort of the habit. It's what you think you'd want to do is just loot it as soon as you're in front of it. Yeah, so I had a friend telling me that too. And I and so you guys are talking about only the special sealed boxes, right? Not every box? Or, mm-hmm. or are you talking about every box? No, I, I, I think only the sealed items yeah. um, oh, okay. progress with time. Because a friend was telling me to kind of do that with every box. And so at first I was kind of avoiding opening anything. Maybe, maybe because I, 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 I opened every treasure chest that I came across. But right. um, if they were... Um, those special special magical boxes, I, I would often wait to open them in the future. Yeah, I think the tip my friend was giving was not that they get better, but I think he was saying if you open the treasure chest from the latest point that you're able to access them, and then uh, you go back in time, you'll be able to open them at each progressive time point and get, like, say, five items. Instead of if you open them at the oldest time, you only get one. That's Maybe true. Maybe you could you do that, do too. That. Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. you can do that, too, but the ones that are further in the future are going to be better items as well, though. Okay, and, so, uh, and that's maybe just for the special boxes, though, and then the regular ones, it's just you kind of get more items by going backwards, but then the special boxes, the item is actually improved by waiting. They they took the fine wine and cheese principle. <laughs> These things yeah. got better with age. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, but even like some of, you know, let's say it's like, you know, some sort of chain mail or something, some armor that's better. If, if you pick that up, like, in the future, you'll pick it up first, and you can get, like, the most advanced, the best version. But then you can go back in time and also pick up those enchanted boxes as well uh, before that and, and get the armor that was in them. But if you pick up the one that's further in the future first, I mean, I'm sorry, further in the past first, you can't pick up um, in the future anymore because it's already gone. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yeah. And I, I'm going to have to be careful about that now because I just recently got the ability to actually do that. Mm-hmm. So I've been kind of going around opening some of those boxes, but I wasn't really thinking about it. In that way, it's so. it's only the ones yeah. that ask you, uh, "Are you sure yeah. you want to open them?" Yeah, the yeah. ones where you need the pendant that glows or whatever, and then it unlocks them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but there yeah, there are some that once you approach them, they'll say, "Do you want to open this box?" Yes or no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've already opened some of those, so I might have kind of screwed myself over a little bit on some, but we'll see. I might not have done too bad. I think you're okay until you get into like the um the sort of the the running around at the end um the uh the side quest i think that yeah. that plays a bigger role in the side quest later on in the game yeah and okay. even if you open yeah. these items now i mean they're still good um they're just not as good as they could be yeah that makes sense all right so i was i was sort of talking about the different areas um and i just kind of wanted to get a sense of what everyone's favorite area in the game was and and maybe why uh, i'd say uh for the look of it and kind of general uh, feeling the Magic Kingdom was pretty cool. What mm-hmm. little I've seen of it so far, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for music, I really liked the uh, 680 uh, Truce Valley or whatever it is, uh, that mm-hmm. uh, time portal there. Mm-hmm. If you go to that place, then mm-hmm. uh, I just really like the atmosphere there. It's all kind of mysterious. Yeah, I'd have to go with the, um, the the Magic Kingdom place as well. Just the atmosphere is so cool. Like everyone's into magic, and like um, you have kind of the separate people living in the sky opposed to the people below who don't practice magic. I thought that that, that was always cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that brought in a, a really exciting kind of subplot. Yeah, it was interesting uh, seeing like 
12,000 years earlier in the story that uh, they were pretty far advanced. Right, it's almost like point. they're more advanced, and then it, you get up to 12,000 BC, and you're like, what happened to all the magic and cool, like, inventions? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I guess for me, my favorite area, I really like the, uh, I sort of like the past. I like the, uh, like, 65 million BC, I thought was really cool. That was one of my favorites, and I guess it's, it's a sort of, you know, as we know, you know, video games are going to take from popular culture and uh mm-hmm. i really i really had that sort of uh land of the lost feeling there you know um it was just a show that i you know watched all the time when i was a kid and uh uh ayla or isla just seemed like uh just my little uh, personal chucka you know <laughs> running around <laughs> anyone remembers that show and you know with the lizard people sort of like the slee stacks and stuff and uh, that was i thought that was that was probably my favorite area and just you know just enjoyed it and, and i did like the music in that area as well mm. Speaking of uh, references and music, um, uh, did anyone catch on to the Robo's theme sounding a lot like Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> no? Well, if you listen to both side by side, they're very, very similar. <laughs> <laughs> did, you get, did you get Rick rolled in uh, yeah, playing Chrono Trigger? <laughs> playing Chrono Trigger, I got Rick rolled. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I guess... Um, you know, where where I'd probably like maybe the conversation to go now is probably talking about some of the big stories. And Jamie, I, I know that that you haven't maybe gotten to these big story areas yet. So you know, I want to give you some time to talk about anything that you want to, or any of you other guys to talk about anything you want to before we sort of get into these um, sort of sort of bigger topics with the game, uh, kind of okay. what's going on toward the end. Is there any areas that you guys would like to maybe approach or talk about? Uh, there's one point I want to mention uh, about the time traveling uh, that we haven't talked about yet. Is uh, well, first of all, have any of you played Final Fantasy Thirteen Two? Yep. I know Sean mentioned that he was kind of interested in it at one point, but I don't know if anyone's actually played it yet. Here. Yeah, no, I haven't gotten around. I, I would on on your recommendation actually got me interested in that series, but I haven't played them yet. Okay, um, because uh, as I was playing it, I was really reminded uh, for Chrono Trigger of uh, this game. And obviously, I mean, Chrono Trigger inspired this game, not the other way around, but just uh, the order I played in, they seem very similar. And looking on Wikipedia, there is apparently a, a Yoshinori Katase revealed in 2011 that he used the time travel mechanics of Chrono Trigger as a starting point for that of Final Fantasy thirteen two, And... I found that uh, interesting. Like uh, they are very similar, but it just shows how the same concept uh, in one case works really well, and then the other, I felt it didn't work nearly as well. Um, uh, it worked. I, it was. I think it was just really convoluted. In, in, I'm talking about Final Fantasy 13 too. I mean, it didn't work as well. Yeah, that's what. That's what I mean. Like yeah. it, it was oh, really okay. confusing, and just mm-hmm. like it, it was too all over the place. Yeah, I, I felt like in Chrono Trigger, everything kind of made sense. Like, uh, you do something in the past that affects the future. And I also really liked how you're traveling um, in more or less the same area uh, to different time periods, and you can actually see the land changing around you. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, in 13.2, you're uh, going to kind of different areas, and you don't really see the changes as clearly. It just doesn't come across as well. Uh, it just shows how easily it is to screw up the time travel concept and how well they really did it here. So I guess... It, does it? Does anyone else have anything else they want to add before we sort of move on and talk about some of the big stories in the game and some things that happen? Uh, I guess we could talk about the news for a minute. The uh, news? News. The uh, the big blue guys. Oh, what I thought you meant like the news. Like, uh, <laughs> like what's going events. on in the world? <laughs> yeah, me too. I was confused. 
Well, there's a lot of stuff happening in Eastern Europe. (laughs) Everyone's doing ice bucket challenges. (laughs) Oh, yes, they are. I just got challenged on Facebook. Oh, you got to do it now. Um, Uh, Yeah, it's not going to happen. No, you got to do it. Can't break the chain. (laughs) The, the, The mayor of my city actually did it. You, you guys have probably heard of uh, the now infamous Rob Ford. No, never heard of the guy. Really? I'm just kidding. No, just kidding. Oh, I'm kind okay. of, I'm kind of obsessed with the guy, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay, uh, two little complaints about the game uh, that uh, I don't know if you guys not- uh, noticed, but um, getting stuck on people. Oh um, yeah, yeah, especially in oh. the uh, Magic City place, like people mm-hmm. just getting in my way, and I'm like, move, please. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, you're like, uh, every time you move, it's just, it turns and it doesn't move they at all. move when you move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, come on. And then I found a couple of characters where it just lets me walk right through them, so I don't know what that's really? about. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, one person in the house, I was able to walk through him as if he didn't exist. I, I was able to walk through my party members at the end of time, but that must have been intentional. Yeah, just that. Uh, that's probably intentional, I would think. And then in the Fiend Lord's uh, fortress or whatever, uh, all those ghost uh, people... You could walk through, but otherwise, normally you just get stuck on everyone. Really gets on your nerves after a while. Um, and then the only other gripe I had was uh, some encounters for battles being forced, even though they're not boss battles. Um, like I can think of some in, I think it was in 600 AD, I want to say, um, uh, where it's just like really minor encounters, uh, but every time you pass through that, they always happen. And I couldn't find any way no, to avoid yeah, them. Yeah, you're right. I, I th- I'm pretty sure I fought every random battle that I came across, and the only one that I did skip was those two imps um, kicking that roly-poly mm-hmm. thing back and forth to each other. Yeah, that's the area I'm thinking of. They had the, the forced one. Yeah. Uh, it's like just beside those guys. They had those two guys who swoop in on you. Exactly, yeah. Um, no, it was fine when you needed the experience, but later on when they're kind of not giving you that much compared to what you can get in other places, it just felt like it was wasting your time. Like, I wish they almost had a, uh item you can equip to almost avoid battles once you get to yeah. that point. Like a repel? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> or, like, what, uh, I mean, I guess this this item would be, or this mechanic would be redundant, since um, the majority of the battles, were you, you could see them coming on the screen, but mm. uh, just sort of like that Earthbound auto-win type thing would have been helpful in some places. I've never played Earthbound, so I can't. Say on that one, but uh, well, it just yeah, basically is this mechanic that if you're um, over a certain level uh, and you encounter a random battle, you'll automatically win. Like you, you won't even oh. go into a battle screen. It'll just say you win. That'd be pretty nice. Yeah, I wish more games did that. <laughs> anyway, that was my only gripes. Um, so yeah, if we wanted to move on to the story, or if anyone had anything to say about music, well, uh, or I wanted to add. Um, I don't know if anyone heard or listened, um, but I came across a few months back um, a CD called Chrono Jigga. Oh, no. <laughs> with, uh, it's actually a mix. It's all, all the Chrono Trigger music with Jay-Z um, rapping over it. Really? Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, it was a free CD that you could just like download or whatever. It's like eight or nine tracks, um, and it, it's pretty good. It's like it mixes well. Sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you send us a link to that? We can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely some. I just looked up a few tracks, like they have them on YouTube. If you just like type in Chrono Jigga, um, and you're like, oh my god, this fits perfectly. Like you wouldn't even guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know somebody on Nintendo Age is planning a yes. Chrono Trigger LP, which is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. following that. 
Yeah, he um the the same the same person actually did uh, Mega Man two LPs. I think Floyd, you and I bought it, right? And yes, I'm we did. Pretty sure. Yeah, Duke and Krabby. Krabby get a copy? I can't remember. Uh, I think Krabby Bill? backed out, and okay. the guy never got back to Duke. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I I got mine in. Not bad. Not bad. No, it's, it's a neat little, um, you know, uh, gaming curiosity piece. All right. But back to back to the matter at hand. Um, I, I guess some of the the bigger stories in the game. Uh, Jamie earmuffs. If we kind of start on the early stuff and go more or less chronologically, then as much as we can with this game. Um, then, uh, I, I guess I'm not. Um, I, I don't have too many that are sort of at the beginning of the game that are, um, you know, sort of big event stories. I guess. Oh, they... I, I have one. Okay, please. Um, the trial. How, how did you guys do in the trial? All right. Yeah. Oh, that part was so cool. Yeah, yeah I, I like love that. it. I restarted it just to get a different outcome <laughs> from one of my last save points. Okay, that's because uh, I was like, uh, I was like. I, I really love that scene. Just everything about it—the sprite work, the uh, the music, the tension—and um, mm-hmm. just like when when, uh, when the jury members are coming out and casting their uh, their vote on your fate, it's it's you know it really has the has you on the edge of your seat. Um, yeah, it's awesome that it's actually your own choices that affected the outcome yeah. too. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's your own choices, and then how you respond to certain questions. Um, mm-hmm. I I won that trial. I think. Five to one in favor of not guilty. Oh wow! I think I was like four to three. <laughs> wow! Oh, that's pretty close. Yeah, I, I, I would be sweating. Like that. Uh, how about you but guys? Even if you win, the story still. Oh, it still puts you in jail because, because that's the, what I was unsure because I was like, I forget if it's different, so I like restart it and I was like, okay, let me go find that cat for the girl and all that. Yeah, I think what happens is um, you actually receive um, a parcel while you're in jail. That's just like some, um, I, I guess, some like ethers or something like something that. Something like that, I, that's, yeah. That's what that's what I remember. I don't think it's anything spectacular, which no, is kind no, of I a think shame, right. you know, um, because it, it it is it does take up, you know, if if you're going to win the trial, it takes up takes up quite a lot, and it's mm-hmm. some of the things are just like you know not pulling on uh, moral, you know, um, you know, hurrying her up when you know at one point where she's trying to decide, you know. She's, uh, you know, at a vendor or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of odd things that like come into play there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But, but it's really neat. It's a really neat mechanic of the game, and kind of shows you what the game's going to be from the beginning. You know. Yeah, when I was doing all those little things in the fair, I wasn't expecting them to affect anything. So uh, I, I was just kind of doing them because I usually like to do side quests if I can, at least mm-hmm. in these older games. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it turns out where they helped. It sets up, like, the tone and stuff for, like, later parts in the game where when you talk to people in towns and stuff, how the outcome can change depending on what you do. So you're more careful, mm. I think, later on. Any other, like, sort of big storylines in between? Maybe towards Jamie, Jamie, is that right? Um, Jamie, do you know Frog's uh, real identity yet? Yeah, I'm well past that. Uh, uh, okay. Glenn. Yeah, yeah um, I, I went through the whole... Uh, uh, Masamune, the thing where he gets a sword and all the little steps for that. He wrote yeah, I think that, uh, that was definitely my favorite. The Frog slash Glenn storyline was my favorite, and you know that I can remember. You'll you'll get a little deeper in that as well um, with the side quest. Um, if you choose to do the side quest, 
uh, you'll learn a lot more of that backstory. And it's one of the things I really like about the side quest is it seems that a lot of those are focused on like a specific character. And hmm. I think that was really done well uh, with the game. You know, later on, I'm not going to really talk about any side quests with, um, right now, but, um, you know, yeah. again, that's something else that, that gets, you know, further flushed out, you know, toward the end of the game. That's good to know. Um, uh, I, I'd say I really like like all the steps you have to do for that and uh, to get the sword, I mean, and kind of the storyline there, but uh, for most of the part, just because of how goofy the character looked, I had a really hard time taking him seriously. And like, I mean, uh, you're trying to feel sorry for this guy and stuff, but it's just like, he's a person with a frog for a head, or a frog's head. It's hey, like, he has to hop around for the rest of his life, too. <laughs> yeah. And they incorporate yeah. that in the game, which is cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, but it's just like, uh, it's kind of hard not to laugh. <laughs> well, uh, just remember the um, the princess and the toad fairy tale, because mm, that, that kind of gets incorporated into the story, too. A little bit, yeah. What did you guys think of the actual Masamune battle? Like, the two uh, little, I don't know, do you call them deities or whatever uh, that you have to fight? The guardians of the sword? Yeah. Uh, I neat. thought that was a pretty tense battle. I mean, um, I, yeah. I, I may have come into it a little bit under-leveled, so um, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a real nail-biter. Was that the uh, one that, that's a boss battle where it's like two big heads? Is that what you're talking about? No, it's, no, it's the guys who are kind of in robes. Yeah. Like, uh, they're weird-looking guys in robes, and then they join together into one oh, really beefy okay. muscle One guy. really buff guy with little tiny legs. Yeah. <laughs> in, right. a big, okay. in a big O mouth. Yeah, that kind of sucked. <laughs> sucks in but uh, from what i remember that battle you if you could you just focused on one you took one of them out and then you could get the transformation you didn't have to take both of them out is that correct? yeah that's what i usually did i think you're okay. right yeah, yeah that helps make you through that fight a little bit easier but mm. yeah, even it, with that i still took at least two or three tries before i beat it it's a cool fight and it, it's you know the, the whole mythology of that's really neat too as far as you know these beans are actually infused into this weapon Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, you know, that's that's just really cool, and it, it's so, um, for a better word, it, it's so sort of Japanese, you know, with 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 the idea of like folklore and, you know, the history of fine like craftsman craftsmanship, you know, with swords and things of that nature. So I I thought that was just a really neat aspect of the game. Mm. Um, any other boss fights that you guys can think of, kind of uh, early game stuff uh, that you liked? Uh, I I enjoyed. Um Azala's fight, that that was mm -hmm. pretty fun, and just uh, yeah, that was a good one. Um, Tyrannos sprite, yep. yeah, that that sprite was really cool. And yeah. um, his or her, I can't remember. Um, Azala's uh, tower was a really cool build up. Yeah, that was pretty good. I think for me, uh, my whole uh, the favorite moment I've got so far is just the whole Fiend Lord's fortress, and uh, the chasing Ozzy through the whole place in these little traps he's setting. And <laughs> oh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Annoying at certain points, but good. Yeah, it's that stereo... Um, it's, it's sort of that stereotypical bad guy that's just sort of a wimp, you know, that like mm -hmm. kind of runs around and always yeah. tries to avoid battle. <laughs> and that's, you know, that, that that's sort of a trope in a lot of things, uh, you know, that tries to act, you know, all high and mighty and in charge, but you, in reality, sort of just a wimp. And um, even the mechanics of that fight—that was that, was that the one where you had to attack the um, you had to attack like sort of the chains, and it would like bring them down yeah. on him. Yes, uh, I think that was at the, the very panels. start or one of the first traps or something. Yeah, with yeah. him, I think. 
uh, then uh, le leading after that was uh, the uh, the Magus fight, um, and this one threw me off because I had read the bit of a spoiler in the thread about uh, how you can get Magus in your party, and if you fought him, it somehow made you not get him in your party, and so I got to this fight, and so I was trying to find a way to avoid fighting him, but I couldn't figure out a way, and so I ended up, uh, I just tried fighting him, and then I ended up killing him, and so I I went back to my previous save, and I thought, okay, I want to try this again, and I looked it up, and it didn't look like this was the actual fight that you guys were talking about in the thread. Yeah, that is a, a mandatory battle with Magus. Um, yeah. The one that determines if he joins your party or not is um, probably a few hours ahead of where you are now. Yeah, I think that's what it sounded like. It was in the 12,000 BC on some uh, peninsula or something on, on the coast. Mm -hmm. Something like yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. I did like the um, cutscene that you got to see of yeah, the that fight was really leading cool. up to Magnus. Yeah, that, that was yeah. really cool. I think that was one of my favorite uh, build-ups to a fight and favorite rooms for a battle. Oh, so then uh, if, you, if you did that battle, you know um, one of the uh, Masamune's special... Um, Special powers, I guess you could say. I'm not sure if I do or not. It uh, lowered a it lowered Magus's defense. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, definitely something I noticed. Yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to actually do that fight without that effect. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, on the topic of that fight, um, were you guys ever stumped by his um, his style of battle? I mean, this was a f probably the first time in the game where you had to. Um, have a very clear strategy uh, about the fight. Yeah, very paying attention to what magic attacks he's using exactly. in order to really damage him. I died probably two or three times before I finally got a good pattern down. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's where he you, you wait for whatever he's using, then you counter with whatever he just used, correct? Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. You would almost have to take damage for like two or three turns and be like, come on, finally use lightning. <laughs> mm -hmm. which, which seems so... Um, counterintuitive to what you usually do during fights, right? I mean, usually if you have a, let's say, you have an enemy that's using fire, your natural instinct is not to use fire on that enemy because it's not going to do a lot of damage. Your instinct is mm -hmm. to use something like water, correct? So it kind of reversed the table on, you know, how, I mean, for myself, how I usually approach an RPG. And even in this game, there was there was a lot of different variations of enemies, same enemy, different color. And, mm -hmm. you know, if it was, you know, red, you typically would use water on it. You know, right, they're like blobs. Um, yeah, and um, there, there were a lot of enemies that were even super resilient to physical attacks. Mm-hmm, exactly. I, I'm, I'm thinking of, like, uh, the shadows. I think they're called shadows in, um, yeah. in, in, in the future. Yep. Yeah. One thing you guys were saying just there about the uh, changing of the spells from Magus... Um, I could be thinking of something else, but uh, I thought uh, that when his spells changed, it was dependent on what you hit him with last. Like, I thought if you hit him with a physical attack, then uh, after that he would be absorbing physical, and you'd have to hit him with something else. And I think, uh, then so on and so forth. I Unless think I'm thinking that's of a how it fight. worked. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Um, it wasn't like he was choosing what he was going to hit you with. It was that uh, you kind of uh, could direct his choices. I mean, like, if you attacked with um, with Frog, um, it would lower his defense. But with anyone else, uh, it would increase his defense, I think. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you, just, you would have to wait for him to use, uh, like, let's say, a fire spell. And that's when you would have to go and use a water spell. But that's what I mean. I thought that uh, the spell sheet uh, was resistant to 
Um, uh, wasn't it like uh, if you use the fire spell on him, then suddenly he's absorbing fire? Or am I thinking of a different fight? No, I think if you used uh, the same spell he just used, uh, it would like just bounce back and hit you or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of something else then, like a later fight or something a bit earlier. So, uh, is there any other major battles or story elements from the early half of the game that you guys can think of? I was going to bring up the, uh, the uh, in the future, the cool robot that you had a race. I thought that was really cool to get to, like, the other side of the dome. You oh, know, like yeah. Like a cool race. It's like an F-Zero kind of thing, mm. almost. <laughs> yeah. You get <laughs> so many, board, like, but, yeah. turbos, and um, you can kind of get ahead if you can, like, get in front and make them bump you up. Yep, that's what I did. Yeah, it's always that last minute you need the, the little turbo to get right at the end. Mm. I, I found, uh, I like the uh, the change of pace there, but I found that the race was pretty simple. Uh, like, it didn't really feel like a race, because it almost felt scripted. And yeah. to me, it just felt like, uh, as long as you weren't bumping into him and you hit the boost it, within the last few seconds, oh, yeah. then you win every time. Well, I just like how like, like comical it was, like he was like... Yeah, that's true. Like based out of like a you know a slickster fifty style gang, but it's like mm-hmm. a robot. Yeah, yeah. They they definitely pulled a lot of like pop culture references with uh, mm. with characters or their names or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember there's there's a character named uh, Dalton, and you just you can't help but think about Roadhouse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty big fight too. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've made it to that yet. Uh, Jamie, so. um don't think so no we'll, we'll say i think that. that's fairly fairly late in the game um yeah what did you guys think about um uh, i think it was sort of a reoccurring thing but uh how uh, the descendants of uh or i guess the ancestors of the fiend lords uh uh minions and uh like the ancestors of the humans uh, they always kind of had this thing going on like a fight uh, throughout each age like no matter how much they evolved or changed it was sort of the same conflict the same war, uh, just being repeated over time. It was kind of interesting, uh, but it's a bit of a typical thing to have in RPGs that they're going to have two um, conflicting uh, cultures or, or races. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that they uh, it spans so much time and yeah. uh, to the point where they actually had evolved to be different uh, species almost. And there, there's um there's an interesting uh, YouTube video by Game Theory. Who I, I I love watching his videos. They're they're really entertaining. Um, some of them are pretty wacky, but some of them kind of make you stop and think. His uh, his comparison was um, the the uh, the Crusades, right? So the um, early mm. early Christians and early Islamic um, uh, nations, right? Yeah, that's a good, a good comparison. Yeah, it's a very similar uh, thing. It's just an ongoing. Uh, extremely long-winded war that just feels like it's uh, interrupted and never really has mm-hmm. a true peace. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely left, uh, you know, a bad taste in, in both parties' mouths about the uh, other culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, like when you're in the 1000 AD and uh, you're going to the um, uh, the fiend's uh, village and uh, they're so against humans mm-hmm. and you go to the human village and they're yeah, and like, uh, uh, so happy for peace. If you want to go to a store you want to go to an inn um, they, they they physically accost you. Yeah. Just because of who you are? Mm-hmm. Now what, what I loved about uh, 1000 AD um, the Medina village area was that you came through that uh, family's wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um uh, like immediately when I saw that, I, I was thinking of um, 
that song Narnia. by no no <laughs> not Narnia. I, Believe... I was thinking Narnia too. <laughs> uh, no, I was thinking by that song by um, uh, by Genesis. Anyway, I'll, 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 it'll come to me. Yeah, I don't know the one you're talking about. Oh well, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Jamie, I'm gonna ask you. You haven't um, you haven't made it up to the, uh, the Lavos battle, have you? No. No, I, I, I mean, I've seen the option in the end of time to go there, but I'm assuming that's kind of endgame, so I haven't touched it yet. That was that was probably the next uh, big storyline that I wanted to touch on, unless, you know, unless there's anything else you guys um, wanted to talk about. Yeah, there, there, there's a few game. things that um, that that I can bring up that are still within the, the scope of the game that uh, Jamie's experienced. Um, the, uh, the battle with Hecarin. Uh, I... I can't remember off the top of my head uh, what was going on with that one. I don't remember it too clearly. I know I've done it, but I just don't remember it right now. That basically unlocked some whirlpool warpy thing uh, that brought you to Tabin's house. Anyway, I just thought his boss battle was cool and that you had to attack him with lightning to reduce his uh, physical defense. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> He's in that uh, um, 1080 when you when you pop up in the uh, the fiend lord um, part of town. Uh, yeah, the sp- uh, battle. Yeah, I remember this. And his sprite was yeah, really was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really also enjoyed the uh, the scene where you uh, first um, lay eyes on the mammon machine. That was really cool. Uh, is that the big flying uh, like? That, that's Massive within the within the magical thing? kingdom. Uh, yeah. It's when you meet the queen and um, the princess. I think she's a princess. Yeah, I think I uh, I saw that. And uh, there's that guy there who kind of uh, says something like, "Oh, these are the ones that the prophet told us that, mm-hmm. that were going to come." And he's like, "I'll let him deal with these." Yeah, not that that whole scene, and um, you know, I I think that's uh. That might be where you first meet Dalton, or or he goes by a different name at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the name, so it could be under a different name. Um, just everything about that uh, that scene, even in sprite work, it just had this um, grandiose uh, vibe about it. Um, no, I, I was so taken aback by it that I even took a picture and posted it on our uh, Twitter. So if anyone wants to go check it out, hmm. yeah, it's I'll a beautiful. A it's a I mean, it's a good point. It's a really beautiful game. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. As, as far as you know, I mean, the Super Nintendo graphics were really just such a jump from um, the regular NES. But the thing is, is games like that really pushed, um, you know, pushed the system graphically. And I think that's one of the things that's so memorable, memorable about it. These, mm-hmm. you know, sort of panned in sort of scenes every once in a while you know you mentioned the uh the trial um just yep. just how beautiful mm-hmm. you know those are and you know the mammoth machine was the same way i mean yeah just yeah the, the the range of colors um mm-hmm. that this game yeah, used bright game mm-hmm. um but also that um just like everything looked so real as far as 16-bit can get you know everything had depth right nothing looked flat hmm and I really loved how the battles transitioned so smoothly out of the uh, environment into the combat. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, always adapted to the area that you were standing in. It's like uh, so many games of that era and older have just a kind of boring looking battle screen. And then this one uh, has this really cool interactive uh, environment. 
Well, you're pretty much fighting in in, um, in the world map, right? It's just yeah, maybe much. slightly different, you know, pixelation rendering job, but. Yeah, essentially you're in uh, the uh, the overworld doing yep. the battling. It's more of an action RPG in uh, a turn-based RPG setting. Oh, um, I, I wanted to ask this question earlier because you brought up turn-based and this just jogged my memory. Uh, how did you guys play the game? Did you do wait or I think um, active was the other uh, option? ATB. Um, I did ATB uh, just because I've gotten used to that through the Final Fantasy thirteen stuff and I find that makes the battles really exciting okay. and just kind of more interesting because they're so fast-paced and I really like being able to attack while the enemy's attacking me and kind of vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a very, like, slow and, and calculated RPG player. So, like, I like to, to sort through my menus and pick what am I going to do, um, which is another reason why I really like Final Fantasy X. But we're, we're not... We didn't play that this month. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. No, just uh, to like sift through that menu and really find like, okay, what what uh, combo technique am I going to do? What uh, what healing or restorative item am I going to use? And it really helped yeah. me just taking the time to play it slowly, just more methodically. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, valid way of playing. Uh, I just I I think I'm more of a trigger gamer. Uh, like I'm used to first-person shooters and mm -hmm. stuff before I got into RPGs, and so I like things to be kind of fast-paced, and mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I like the fact that uh, with uh, that ATP gauge on, it uh, really added some extra stress to the battles, yeah. and like, uh, you're seconds away from dying, and you're like, oh, come on, get the bar up to the top, and uh, you quickly go to choose your attack once it's ready, and uh, you accidentally hit the wrong one, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. I mean, like, I have nothing against that uh, active uh, battle mechanic. Uh, like, I really liked it in um, Nino Kuni. And mm. uh, I'm sure when I finally play uh, Tales of Zelia, I'm going to like it there, too. But, um, no, if I have um, the option to be, like, turn-based, um, a la early Final Fantasy, I will, I will always choose that option. I think this is actually the only game I've seen that gives you the option. I, don't, I think I, so. I haven't played too many RPGs, but... I've never seen one before that actually lets you choose. How about some of the other guys? How did you how did you play the game? I have a confession. I'm I'm actually I ran and grabbed my DS. I've been playing the game this whole time, and I'm actually oh, yeah. um, I'm doing the active. I think that's the way I did it last time, and it, it does make it a little more exciting and kind of um, like like Jamie said, waiting for the bar. Like, come on, come on, come on! I gotta yeah, I gotta yeah, move. Exactly. It's 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 pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, that's how this I game, remember playing I, I the game I had, when I played it originally. I should have replayed this game. It's really a lot of fun. I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying it a lot. Right now. <laughs> I mean, it, like it's so timeless, and and we're probably going to touch on that. Um, and yeah. this game has such a special place in in gamers' hearts. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, Sean drops out of Suikoden Two and just plays Chrono Trigger. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. right. He jumped ship. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Russ, what about you? Uh, did you go with ATB or turn-based? Yeah, no, I did the active mode as well. Um, I just like how um, you said um, you're waiting for that bar to go up, so you're like, come on, I need that heal potion right now. I'm going to lose. Mm. It just adds a lot more. I also was going to bring up, too, cause since you know I was playing it on the DS as well, I thought it was great with the uh, two-screen mechanic where on the bottom screen it had all your attacks, combos, and everything, and the top screen was just the battlefield, um, so you can yeah, get a better I'm really, layout. 
I'm really enjoying that right now. You can actually see like, you know, I mean, that's an advantage of the DS in general with RPGs right. is all the stuff mm. you can have on the bottom screen. But this really enhances the hell out of this game. I can see why people like this version so much. Yeah, that's something um, uh, for me. I wanted to try and be as close to the original as possible. So I actually went with the uh, classic uh, setting. Me too. Right. But I'm planning on switching at some point and uh, maybe even next time i play i might switch it just because i want to experience the ds version as well but so far up to this point i've only been doing the classic which does get annoying sometimes especially when the menu switches between top and bottom depending on where your attacks are going mm-hmm. right because it loads annoying. over the character with the bar so you're like yeah and it pushes the other way and it's like mm-hmm. oh well i was just looking up there for the menus i kind of need to look up there and then suddenly it's down the bottom it's y- like, you can move the um that text box with Y or X? I can't remember. Uh, with Y, I think. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did figure that much out, but um, it doesn't stay where you move it to. No, it, it, it jumps back, but yeah. at least you do have some control of it. Yeah, you do have a little bit of control. Have either of you guys used, um, in the DS, they added an extra option called, like, a, it's like raising a monster, and you do, like, battles and arenas with it? Oh, the arena battle? No, I haven't tried that yet. I was kind of saving that until after beating the main game. Yeah. Yeah, I, I beat this game so late in the month that I didn't really have time to uh, to go back and try all the extra goodies. Yeah, essentially, I guess you get a monster and you can send him to different time periods. And depending on where he goes, he levels up differently. And then you battle in arenas. Um, I did it a few times of leveling him up, but I never actually um, went back to send him into a battle. Just because it says, come back at a later point, your monster will be leveled up. And I just got sidetracked, you know, actually playing the game. I never went back. Yeah, and according to the box, at least, um, you can actually do multiplayer with that. You can send your monsters to other players' DS and fight them almost like Pokemon. Oh, okay. So I think that's pretty much about it for the main story that I had seen. I mean, uh, there's a few little things here and there, but I can't think of anything else major up to the point that I played, unless there's something you guys remember that I've forgotten. Uh, Oh, did you pick up on on that big uh, big hint, that big foreshadowing bit where um, Janus Janus says um, one of you will soon die. I saw that. Yeah, I don't actually know what that means yet. Okay. I haven't gotten that far. <laughs> um, and were you able to? I guess you, maybe not then. But uh, do you have an idea of who Janus could be? No, no, I haven't okay. <laughs> figured that out. No, that's all right. Yeah. Maybe that's the next thing you guys can talk about once I jump off here. So yeah, I think I'm just going to sit out now and uh, I'll let you guys continue. Yeah, so we we appreciate uh, Jamie joining us for that portion of the call and wishing best of luck in finishing Chrono Trigger. Um, one of the big storylines that I wanted to um, talk a little bit about is something that Floyd alluded to just a few minutes ago. And that was someone very important in this game actually dying. Um, I thought this was a very uh, poignant um, part of the game, and um, you know, you you really don't see a main character dying in a game as we we do with Chrono. Um, of course, you know um, that's all mended through time travel, <laughs> as you mm-hmm. know, and through. Um, something like kind of kicking it back to the very beginning of the game that you could acquire. And um, it, I just kind of want to know you guys' thoughts on that. Um, and also, you know, just, just sort of about 
did you already have the clone before that point? Did you know where to go? Um, were you kind of thrown off by that? I knew where to go because uh, I, I remembered the the name of that um, that uh, mage. I mm-hmm. like when I initially met him, I had no clue that he was one of the um, the the special mages of, <laughs> of time or whatever they're called. Um, the the yeah the moment where Chrono dies is is very poignant and um, you know like that that's it's going to stick with me for a long time, but uh, the whole mission to revive him I found was very tedious I, I didn't quite enjoy it but I wanted Chrono in my team so I I jumped through all those hoops and brought him back. You know what? Wasn't the like reviving Chrono was almost like finding the Triforce maps in the Wind Waker, where you just want to end the game, but you you are kind of forced to do this mm-hmm. tedious thing to uh, that kind of pads the game that you have to run around and do. Um, and I don't remember it too much, but I, what I was alluding to at the beginning of the conversation with that walkthrough that I read was basically just tells you to play to the point where Chrono dies and then to go finish the game. And I, you know, I I knew that there was a better way to do it, but you're definitely right that I remember it being kind of tedious to run around and do whatever it is you had to do to to, uh, resurrect Chrono Mm. Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I'm currently stuck uh, because I did beat the game um, two nights ago without Chrono. and I saved a checkpoint before um, so that I can try to go back. Now I found the, cr- uh, the clone and I have the t- time egg, but I can't find the person that I'm supposed to talk to, I guess, to drop it off at the, uh, like the Sun Palace or whatever. I believe that's how it goes. Oh. So you're supposed to drop it in like 600 BC or something like that. or Right. Um, oh, I can't remember how I revived Chrono now. Um, yeah, I think... Because they said you have to find the person that made your... Um, time machine and i can't remember where he is now i thought he was the guy from the um and the time but i guess it's uh, oh no else. no no um oh geez it's the um the dude in the future and and he uh uses um uh when those big blue uh when those big the news the news yeah. yeah he uses a new as his um uh his conduit so mm. um it, it's like through a series of, isn't that the, is it the name is it Balthazar? you're right yeah okay. yeah um and he he's behind a, a series of magically sealed doors that's right yeah because i couldn't remember if he was in the future or if he like went somewhere else i was like i know he's from the future <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so i was working on that and then i was trying to the past two days since i had completed the game i've been trying to beat it with just chrono and uh marley um to get that ending going right to lavos from the fair okay um how did your game pan out with chrono with chrono in my party uh, no sorry uh without that's what i meant to say oh right i mean um yeah i ended up completing it but then ending um you know marley wants to go back and save him and everyone else is just kind of like we just want to go back to our own time um so that all ends and then it shows her at the fair with uh luca just hanging out and then um they all come through a time vortex everyone that was in your party um and they're kind of like um was it the guy at the end of the time i guess had something special and he's like we can save chrono still and it kind of ends at that and you're like oh okay oh, okay so kind of just hints at it 
yeah that you can at some mm-hmm. point get that ending and also it's good on the on the ds version it leaves you um slots where it shows there are um a total of 13 different endings and you can unlock them and kind of just when you unlock them all you could just view i guess the movie of that ending to kind of see it right yeah um yeah i i got the uh the default um like everybody's happy the you know world order has been restored ending and it wasn't a particularly good ending but it was appropriate for the story you know the your your party members pretty much just say that uh you know it's it's been a heck of a ride and we're going to go back to our respective time periods but you know we we now have a a friendship that transcends time mhm now i was wondering too cuz i had at first i wasn't leveled up enough but i was playing through the black omen and i ended up dying there um i'm not sure if you can end the game there fighting everyone there or if that pans out to somewhere else because then i ended up just going through um the bucket at the end of the time and battling lavos that way oh okay i um i didn't do that i um i got to lavos via the black omen and um okay mm -hmm. and geez what did i do um i just lost my train of thought oh no yeah, because you fight the queen, and then she's like, "My power is not good enough here," and you like go into space or something and continue the fight. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, no, because you're talking about um, what happens if you die against Lavos. Is that right? I think. I mean, um, I'm not sure if it depends what time period you're in in the Black Omen, but I got like all the way as far as you could go, and you start fighting the queen, and then she's like, "My power is not strong enough in here," and she like transcends out, and you're like, I think in space, and then I think you fight her different in a different form oh okay um i i never saw that uh when i battled lavos it was in 1080 i believe and if you died you got this cutscene with a person in 1999 uh who's uh like directing a few colleagues saying you know run to the such and such dome and you know take refuge there and it, the lab is is falling apart and asteroids oh yeah are, and it shows the map and everything's beeping yeah and um yeah then it just says but the future still refused to change which yeah. um i guess it's in a way an unofficial ending but uh, it's it's kind of cool that you can still experience that and learn that uh you know you weren't able to fulfill your objective and you know that you you weren't able to alter uh alter you know the the path of time well i like how they add it like it's almost they gave it like the bad guy an ending it's just not like game over they're like okay game over and then this is what happened Mm -hmm. when you died yeah it's like it serves as an epilogue almost so it makes you want to go back and like okay like that's what happened like i can't let that happen let's go back and try again it definitely does motivate you to go back yeah (laughs) so i guess where i would want to direct conversation now is you know, this is this is one of those games that, you know, lovers of the Super Nintendo, it's it's well known to, to people who love the Super Nintendo. It's probably I would say probably the most well known RPG to people that own Super Nintendos, and you mm-hmm. know, definitely one of the most sought after mm-hmm. uh, by collectors. 
Yeah, I say working at a game store, a lot of people always come in and are like, do you have Chrono Trigger? Do you have Chrono Trigger? Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And I know that, Floyd, this was your first time playing the game, so there, there's so much hype surrounding this game. you know. And, and I know for, for people that did not grow up with the Super Nintendo, did not play this game, and are really big RPG fans, are going back and playing these games... There's there's so much hype around, and everyone tells you, especially a lot of games, about how good they are. And a lot of times, what someone's original um, thoughts were on a game really sometimes just don't add up to how how good the game is. A lot of times, it's just nostalgia, you know, just they're just kind of wax nostalgia. From you, I just kind of want to know, since it's your first time playing, did it did it hold up to those expectations? Because I, I know you've heard about the game, of course. Oh, I, I, I had known of the game for a long time, and I have known of this game's um, place in in um, you know in gaming history. Did it live up to the hype? Yes, you know, a, a solid yes. I okay. I really did enjoy it. I, I think what uh, definitely helped was that I didn't talk to many people about it before or during my playthrough, so I didn't, you know, come in with any preconceived notions. I just knew that this is one of the um, greatest game, or greatest RPGs of all time, um, and that it's you know a must-play game. I got to agree, if I can just chime in here too, I, I sure. also, sure. even though I played the game like two years ago, that was also my first time playing the game, and I, I just got to agree okay. that this really was one of those games that it's, you know, it's on every top list of games of all time, top RPGs of all time, um, and I got to totally agree that this game totally lives up to the hype and and there are a lot of games out there that i have this kind of a theory about games that are hard to find and russ could probably um add to this that sometimes games that are harder to find have kind of a mystique that people kind of will overrate them a little bit Mm -hmm. even though they're not that great i think of like sonic cd which is a great sonic game but like people play that up like it's the best Sonic game of all time. And it's, it's you know, it's different, it's cool, but, you know, it's just another Sonic game to me. And there's there's a lot of games that are kind of fallen to that category. Right. Even and though Chrono Trigger was like a big seller and, I'm, you know, millions of, not maybe not millions, but thousands of people played it when they were kids. Um, what I'm trying to say is it does live up to the hype, even though it's getting harder and harder to find. But it is um, now because it's widely available on ports and you, you can play it on mobile, like we were saying, like you can get it anywhere. And I think, you know, you can't just do that with any old game. Like for a company to invest in like mobile ports of, of games without it being some free to play like scam, like they did with uh, the Tales of Fantasia thing, you, you have to have a quality product that stands the test of time and, Chrono Trigger, like a lot of people say, it's it's perfect in every way. It's almost flawless, and I would I would agree with that. Yeah, and I think even if you're collecting for the Super Nintendo, I mean, in in general, even at a hundred dollar price point for a loose copy, I I would say even go as far as to say is even if you spend a hundred bucks on this game, it, it's not just one of those games that you just need for your collection. 
it's going to be one of those games where you're going to be like, I just spent 100 bucks on a game, but that game was, you know, well worth it. I mean, just well worth the complete experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm just speaking, you know, from myself. and, um, But, you know, I mean, I hate that, it, that the price has go- gone up on, these, on this game, especially because it's one that, you know, I, I would want a lot of people to experience. But knowing that it's on other ports, such as, um, you know, PlayStation and the DS and knowing people can still enjoy it and, and have to some degree the same experience that I had playing it when it came out um, really makes me happy to know that there are, there are more affordable means for this game. And I wish I could say that about, um, you know, other games. Yeah, I, perhaps I, one we're playing next <laughs> month. <laughs> I, I have that uh, sentiment as well. Um, you know, it's it's a game that everybody should play. You know, whether you're an RPG fan or not, um, if you just have that interest in older games, it, it's something that you do want to find and uh, and and play, whatever platform you end up getting it on. Yeah, pretty much the reason I got the DS was because um, gaming is hard to come by like playing with me because I have three jobs you know a lot of people have school and this and that and if it's on a handheld device you can play it anywhere um, so especially with an RPG you got a lot of grinding to do and exploring it was just easier sometimes I'm laying in bed can't sleep I can you know play for 45 minutes and get a lot done mm-hmm, exactly yeah I find um, uh, I'm drawn to a lot more uh, portable RPGs lately and, and the price I was, I would, to get back onto that isn't really that bad if you look at it, I guess, at retrospect with if you're going to go out now and buy, uh, you know, a brand new PlayStation 4 game, Xbox One game, you know, there's 60 bucks. Um, what's another $40 to grab, like, a game that you're going to get so much value out of that where there's so many side quests and 13 different endings? Mm-hmm. You can play this game for, I've been playing it for now, what's, like, six weeks and I could probably put another month into it, just uh, trying to get the other endings and you know have a blast with it. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, I think that is a, a really good trait of especially older um, role-playing games is that the investment that you put in has such a great return, right? Like, do do you guys know what I'm saying? Like you put so much time into it and you don't feel like, geez, I just wasted forty hours. Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, very. And you, you are enriched by what you're doing, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Yeah. Even the side quests in this game, I guess, kind of speaks to that. I mean, the side quests don't feel forced. I mean, you feel like you, you really want to do them, you know? I mean, it's not it's it's not something, you know, that you necessarily have to do, but it's they're, they're done in such a way that it really enriches the game and furthers a lot of the storylines. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it makes you want to to go do right. those things. And I said it all comes yeah. down to like your choice and what you choose to do. Like a lot of the, um, in the past, um, with the forest being gone and you go to, I think Fiona's her name house. And she's like, mm-hmm. I wish I could get this, uh, you know, forest back, but I need someone that can work nonstop. And you can either choose to leave Robo there to help her. And if you do, yeah. and you go in the future, you're like, Oh, the forest is like flourishing now. Mm hmm. Right. And just all those little things. I remember going to the mayor's house and all his kids were like, I hate my father. He's so greedy, this and that. And if you go in the past and do a certain thing there, it has a different outcome. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that also lends to um, to the hype and like timeless nature of this game that um, 
there's so much you can do to make it feel like this is your experience with it. Yeah, you could almost choose to be bad or good, like choose your side. How do you want the outcome mm -hmm. to be? I think, yeah, the, the only thing that I haven't really touched upon uh, about the hype question is um, like I, I really thoroughly did enjoy it. Um, perhaps not as much as um, somebody who is nostalgic for it, but that's only because they have that nostalgia bias. But I mean, yeah, it, it's you cannot deny the um, the importance and just overall excellence of this game. Yeah, no, I mean, no doubt. I mean, it's you know, it it's considered a classic for for a reason. You know, it it didn't have a brand behind it. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're playing a um, let's say a, a a Zelda game on the GameCube. You don't you don't automatically have that name behind it. This is a you know, this is a fresh start to a series. Um, you know, the first time. I mean, I've never played Chrono Cross. I've, you know, mixed reviews I've heard about mm -hmm. it. Um, but, you know, for this just to kind of like kind of pop out of nowhere and, and kind of stand on its own without having any sort of initial support, um, I think says a lot about the game as well. You know, being, being such a standout and, and being such a classic, you know, in the gaming community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, honestly, if, if they were to... I would say if they were to put out you know another Chrono Trigger game today on you know let's say uh, PS4 you know I, I think you know even just a different different game people would be all over it I mean it would it would automatically shoot yeah to the top. It, it's, it would it's it would one of the best bring so games. many people back to that uh, time period like and I just want to say and, and probably a lot of um, like people born in the 90s or, or people who just didn't have the chance to play this game when it came out. And anyone who is aware of RPGs in general will will know the names, um, you know, Nobu Uematsu, Sakaguchi, and you're going to realize that these people were involved in this game, and you know their track record, so you, you, you will want to track this game down and find out, you know, the, the just, I can't stop saying it, but the, the superior nature of this game. All right, guys, well, I just want to... Um... I just want to say um, thanks, Russ. I appreciate you joining us this uh, this month for the actually playing the playthrough and also on the podcast here. We enjoyed having you on, and hopefully we can have you again in the future. Oh, yeah, I had a blast. I mean, participating on the forum and just, like, talking about it, you know, bring back so many memories and good times with it. Glad I could help out and share my thoughts. All right. And um, we've got another little special surprise. I, I talked to Floyd about this uh, previously. And um, just wanted to say for, you know, when we, when we post our uh, podcast, we always have a, a link to our playthrough forums where you can discuss the game and actually discuss the podcast even further. And we like to hear your feedback on there, certainly. Mm -hmm. But we've also got a special prize this month, and you have to post on the forums if you post the phrase, Frog the Wet Robo Sprocket. <laughs> we will send you a special prize. And for anyone who gets that band reference, uh, you're probably as old as I am. So, but uh, but yeah, thanks uh, thanks again to uh, Wait, Floyd. Where and, do you uh, want them to post that, Rich? Anywhere on the forums or only in the Chrono Trigger playthrough thread? You can spray paint that on a wall and take a picture of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, they will just have to post that phrase in the the podcast discussion okay thread yep yep the one that the, the link will be on the front page there yep thanks for uh clearing that up yeah. sean appreciate it 
And just want to say um, again, you know, thanks to uh, thanks Floyd, Sean for joining us, and uh, also to Jamie who's not here, who uh, bowed out on us to avoid any spoilers. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a good night. Right, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again. So for the month of July, on the modern side, we played a few PC titles. We played Minecraft, Gone Home, The Stanley Parable, and Dear Esther. Our host for the month was Jamie, so Jamie, I'm going to let you take it away. So um, these four, uh, they're all indie titles, and um, uh, they are also all PC exclusives at launch anyways. Minecraft uh, branched out after a while, and uh, I think what we're going to do is just... Uh, start off with Minecraft and then uh, once we get to it then we'll describe the other three games as well. So Minecraft is a uh, sandbox uh, title on PC, originally launched in 2009 for alpha testing, um, but it was available for the public uh, throughout that whole period until 2011 when it got its full retail release, which at the time really didn't feel that much different except for a new label on it. Um, it's a, a game based on building whatever you want, doing whatever you want. It's an endless open world, and these worlds are also randomly generated, so uh, every time you play it's going to be a little bit different. And uh, uh, this is one that I think not many people are really that interested in the RF generation. Um, it's more more than normal, it's geared towards kids, really. Uh, it's got a very Lego feel to it, right. if anyone else is a Lego uh, fan. Um, and yeah, I think that about sums it up. Um, uh, as you guys, uh, being non-players, uh, sort of, uh, how do you feel about it? Uh, like, uh, what's your general opinion on it? Well, I think, and and you kind of hit it on the head. Most of the people that I see, um, not only playing but sort of being obsessed with Minecraft, seems to be, you know, a younger generation. You know, um, you know, preteen um, generation. I have a few cousins who. Are really into it. I've I've never picked it up, you know, sort of, um, basically, you know, kind of looking at the cover. It, you know, like you said, it has sort of a Lego sort of look to it. You know, everything's like uh, heavily pixelated, and uh, you know, even the even like the cover to the game, you know, looks a little more like kid friendly. It just doesn't mm-hmm. hasn't ever seemed like something that I would you know ever want to pick up. So you know, for that reason, you know, I haven't. Yeah, I think they tried to gear it towards the retro crowd originally with the 8-bit style that uh, is kind of coming back in uh, style right now with a lot of indie titles. Mm-hmm. But it didn't really quite uh, work out so well. Uh, it's got a pretty good adult following, but uh, there's uh, a much more vocal kid following. Right. Like Usually when you see people playing, it's young people. Um, I think that just uh, is really because it is so creative and free. It's uh, something that people can play without rules and all these kids who don't like to color within the lines and uh, they can just do whatever they want really yeah and you know as a kid i mean legos were really big when i was a kid and um it, it's something that i was really into when i was younger and it, it does look like you know on the surface looks like something that that i would be interested in um but i guess you know the game from what i understand has a fairly addictive quality to it as well 
which is oh, yeah, something definitely. which is something I've tried to stay away from. Um, I'm mm-hmm. I'm six years sober from uh, World of Warcraft. Um, ever since my daughter was born, uh, that was congratulations. That was, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm living proof. Um, so it's just something that um, you know I, I had. I honestly had a game addiction, you know, to World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of got away from it and started collecting for the console. And, you know, that's something that, you know, just really, you know, helped me out and helped me branch out a lot more into gaming. And so, you know, for that reason, that's 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 sort of an, another reason, you know, personally for me, why I've sort of stayed away from Minecraft. I've, I've you know, I've noticed this sort of addictive quality in, in the, you know, the younger generation. And so, you know, I felt like mm-hmm. something that I might fall into as well. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely got that uh, just one more block uh, kind of mentality right. to it. Uh, once you get started uh, with an idea, you don't really want to stop. And uh, every time you do something in there, it adds more things that you could do. And you get some new tool, and suddenly you're opening up more possibilities. Or you find a big uh, mother load of uh, diamond or something like that, and uh, you're good to go for another uh, session of gaming. So is that the concept of the game, basically, Jamie? Is it you're sort of like... I mean, I'm taking it the game Minecraft. I mean, it's like you know Warcraft, you know Starcraft. Is it? Is that what you're doing basically? Is you're going and you're digging, finding these loads of of different materials, um, and then bringing them back to a certain area and building things? Or um, how, do, how does that work? It's less structured than that. Uh, even um, mm. uh, it's yeah, the name kind of implies it's going to be something along those lines, uh, but. It's a little more literal uh, in the sense that uh, really you just you explore to find resources, you mine them, and then you craft them. Uh, you craft them. Yeah, you just the name kind of uh, sums it up pretty nicely. Okay. Um, and unlike games like StarCraft or World of Warcraft or anything like that, you're not restricted in any way. Like I don't know if you found uh, a cache of a certain resource that you wanted. You could, uh, if you had the other resources uh, in your inventory to build what you needed, uh, you could plunk down a crafting table right beside where you found the resources, and you could just start uh, building uh, the tunnel you're in into like uh, a hall of some mansion, and you could carve out the mountain around you and build it to be exactly how you wanted. Like you can craft the world to fit what you want it to be. Uh-huh. It's very much like real life, where uh, everything's basically a mold that you can. Uh, make it fit to what you want it to be. Okay, so are there there enemies, or is there any sort of in-game? Um, you know, how, how does... How does yeah. That... Um, the enemies in the game are generally a bit more of a nuisance than anything. Uh, they're just kind of there to give you something to make it feel more like a game, and less like an art program, okay. I guess. <laughs> but uh, uh, they do uh, give you experience, which you can use to... Um, uh, do this thing called alchemy, which is kind of a mm-hmm. buffing uh, system for your weapons and items and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, they, uh, they're they also just generally a, an aspect of survival. Uh, like, there's two modes of the game, survival and creative, which are the two major elements. And survival is basically more of a traditional game, but uh, with the open world elements. Mm-hmm. And that's all about fighting and leveling up and stuff like that. Okay. And then creative is kind of like what would be considered cheating in other games where you just have access to unlimited of every resource and you can build anything you want with no threat of damage from enemies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's really made for people who have some massive building plan in their head and they want to just build it and they don't want to deal with all the 
time-consuming mining aspects and fighting enemies and stuff. Okay, okay. So you mentioned that this month you actually you played the game also. Uh, we had some participants. You, you. Um, I, I'm assuming you started your own server and um, you had a few people that kind of popped in. I know that you and Sir Psycho mm-hmm. played a little bit together. Um, what is the the kind of the co-op experience for this game? It's pretty good. Um, uh, you can uh, really uh, play as a team or to, uh, on your own. It's uh, pretty flexible. Mm-hmm. But uh, with the server thing, basically, I just set up a home PC server, and then if someone has the address to that, they can just jump in pretty much like any other PC multiplayer experience. Okay. And then they can just start uh, playing as they would in single player. If they wanted, they can start mining and building their own things. And we can also work together. Like There was one point where me and him were playing together, and uh, we found this pretty big extensive cave system uh, that uh, it was just stock full of enemies and uh, on our own we probably wouldn't have been able to make it mm-hmm. but even with the two of us we kept dying and we just kept like respawning <laughs> and then we run full speed back to where we died and trying to gather our stuff because every time you die your stuff kind of oh, explodes okay. out from where you died and you have to run back grab it within five minutes otherwise it disappears oh no and so uh, we were constantly like uh, fighting off these uh, monsters and then we get killed and have to run back and uh, eventually we uh, killed off enough of them where we could settle down and build a little um, outpost under the uh, cave and <laughs> just trying to uh, survive under there together and uh, fight off what we could. Sorry, I'm just I'm envisioning you and Sir Psycho in your little owl, <laughs> in your little foxhole together. Right me, me, yeah. I, a, I think I had a broke back uh, mountain moment there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty funny. Um, it definitely lends itself to multiplayer, uh, like working together and all that, and sharing resources too, because you can fill up a chest with items, and then anyone can look at the chest at the same time as you and grab whatever they want, or you could uh, put a sign above the chest saying, uh, please don't touch, and this is my stuff if you don't want someone to take it, or whatever. I mean, they don't really have any kind of locking uh, system uh, where you can keep people out. So You can't set booby traps or anything? them uh they do sort of have some stuff now but i haven't looked into it too much because okay. uh, they're constantly adding new features to the game okay. and uh, new items and stuff like that so i think there is a tripwire now and some other things you can also set like tnt on pressure plates and stuff okay um but i've never really looked into that in too much detail all right so is uh is minecraft still a one-man project or has um has, has a team developed around it uh, they've got a team now. There is a documentary on it that I watched a while back, and uh, it looks like they, at least when the documentary came out, there were around like a, I think it was six to ten people, something like that. And uh, yeah, it started out as one or maybe two people, but it branched out pretty quickly because it was just getting too big. And I think the original guy who everyone associates with it, uh, Notch, he's moved on to other games that they're making, and uh, he's sort of is vaguely involved with Minecraft, but overall he's passed it on to someone else. Yeah. It's still a fairly hot game right now, um, mm-hmm. you know, from what I understand. Where do you kind of see the future of Minecraft? Are they are they talking about you know is there a, a sequel you know in the process? Are they just kind of you know adding on sort of expansions, um, you know, like other games do, other PC games, or um, you know, kind of what is the what is the state of the union of Minecraft right now and going forward? <laughs> uh, I'm not aware of any sequels. I have high doubts that they're actually going to come up with something like that okay. uh, because just the way that uh, they're developing it from day one they were pretty much uh, involving the community and like someone would suggest something as a feature and then maybe a couple weeks later they would actually have that feature in the game mm-hmm. based on the suggestion of the member and they're very community focused and uh, so I think uh, 
they've just gotten too much into this habit of uh, they see a new feature they like, they just add it, or they see a bug, they just fix it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're really going to ever start doing DLC or expansions or anything like that. Maybe on the console versions, mm -hmm. I don't know, but the PC version is so flexible that uh, I think uh, they just prefer that method. Because if you look at the game two years ago compared to now, it's got so much extra content that it's basically like adding a few expansion packs anyways. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't really think they would ever do a sequel because it seems like something that is a one-time hit sort of thing. I feel like it would be really difficult to actually add on to that. Yeah. They're just going to run in, run it into the ground, into their servers. Um, yeah, stop I think so. Up. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's going to be one of those games where it's just going to keep going until it gets bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't feel like they know when to stop. Uh, like some of the stuff uh, I know uh, some people seem to be kind of groaning over uh, mm -hmm. now. Not too much, but it's kind of getting that way where they're just adding so many things. Yeah, yeah. Well, But the good thing is the community is so involved that uh, with mods and things like that, uh, that and people can just uh, keep adding on more and uh, it's not necessarily dependent on the developers to make it better. Yeah, yeah. Have they got it set up? Is there like, you know, I know there are different servers and stuff that you can probably play on out there. Are there more like, are there servers that are sort of limited to, you know, kids and then more like adult servers, you know, with a more adult community where, um, you know, adult, adults can you know, kind of go back and forth, um, you know, and play? Kind of. I think mm -hmm. it depends on who's running the server, obviously. Uh, right. But yeah, I think uh, for the most part, there probably is. The thing is, it's a little different with the multiplayer. It's not really a server list that you just browse okay, through. You actually have to, you really have to know where the server is, like oh, the exact okay. IP address and everything. And yeah. then you just type it in and save it to your server list, okay. and then you can go back to it. All right. But uh, it's not like a typical game where you just have a huge list of every server in existence and you browse through them to find the one you want. Okay. okay. It's not exactly that public. All right. Yeah. That 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 answers my question. The way it came out was kind of creepy, and I apologize to our community <laughs> for that. No, no. <laughs> but I, I, you know, as far as you know, myself, you know, being a parent, you know, you just mm -hmm. you kind of worry about you know what your kids are doing, and you know, I, I didn't know if they were like you know kids safe communities and things like that, since you know this game is is yeah. mainly geared toward uh, geared toward you know younger uh, sort of preteen. Uh, yeah, uh, it's the problem with this game is it is so flexible and open that that is a bit of an issue. Mm -hmm. But I think there's so many kids that uh, they uh, really the thing with parents is uh, that they have to get more involved with the kids with this kind of game. Absolutely. And like you need to sit down and if your kid wants to play on a server, it's I'd almost recommend playing the server yourself for a day or so, mm -hmm. uh, even if you don't know the game that well, and just see how the community seems to be in there. Yeah, because otherwise there's no real way to know. There's no set of standards for servers. And there's no like rating system or anything on like that. Say this is a uh, adult server or this isn't. Um, and a lot of them are going to be mixed yeah. uh, with adults and kids. So yeah, so uh, so you can be in there like, oh no, Joey just put up a Minecraft stripper pole. It's probably not the yeah. server for my kid. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I mean that's even something that uh, they could probably do if someone <laughs> had the creative mind to. Yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. So we talked um, about so we talked about enemies a little bit. Um, are there any types of, you know, larger enemies in the game? Any type of, you know, bosses? I know you said there's kind of smaller enemies. And yeah, like uh, there's, uh, the game does have sort of bosses. Uh, I mean, that's what I have in my notes here, uh, bosses and quotes. Because the game doesn't really consider them bosses. And it's not like a typical game where you have to, uh, like, just get through the story to find these bosses. You almost have to create the bosses to make them spawn. So there's Iron Golem, which... 
it's not exactly a boss. It's uh, more just an idle, neutral enemy uh, that uh, will not attack you unless you attack the village that is defending, or if you attack it. But it's so powerful that it can kind of be considered a boss. And it's just like this uh, robotic thing that paces back and forth in front of this village, defending it from whatever happens to be by there. This is a and then, this is an enemy that uh, the creators put into the game. Oh. Yeah, yeah, these are all uh, made by the creators, uh, but uh, by something that players can make. Uh, I mean that this is something where you could actually stack built uh, blocks on top of each other, and it would turn into this uh, unit. And uh, so you can kind of create it if you wanted to, and then it would defend your own house too, not just uh, enemies' houses, but it would defend you from other players. And so uh, there's that one, and that one's, yeah, I don't know, that one's more like a mini boss, I guess. And then there's the Wither, which that one's much more like a traditional boss, uh, mm -hmm. where it's just a very powerful enemy. Uh, you do have to initiate it yourself uh, by following a certain process, which I haven't done enough to really remember it off the top of my head, but. It's very much more like a traditional boss where it's got like uh, projectiles that's firing at you and it's really a, a battle that you're dealing with there. Um, it's something that you don't want to do unless you're uh, well into the game and you've got lots of strong armor and weapons and everything. Okay. Um, and then the, the basically the final boss is called the Ender Dragon. And this is something where you have to do a very long process of finding this place uh, where it has a portal in it and that portal takes you to a very dark and creepy place called the End. And it's just full of all these enemies called Endermen who are, I don't know if you've heard of the kind of popular scary guy right now, a Slenderman, uh, but uh, uh, it's kind of like that. It's just this tall, dark person that uh, if you stare at them, they attack you, and if you don't look at them, they're idle. Hmm. And uh, so this whole place is just full of people like that, and uh, you can either fight them or ignore them, but there's so many that you don't really have much choice. Wow. And uh, once you've kill off enough to have sort of a safe zone then you can spawn in the ender dragon and once you defeat him it'll create a uh, portal which you jump into and that basically takes you to credits for the game so there's a sort of ending even though the game's infinite okay but it's uh, much more of a uh, i don't know it's a pseudo ending because uh, once you've gone through the credits it just sends you back to the very beginning okay and uh it will be as if nothing had happened really uh, except for the fact that you have some loot in there that you didn't have before are these okay. quote-unquote bosses uh obstacles that prevent you from going to the next area like in a typical game structure no, see, that's the uh, thing, that, and that's kind of the reason I have them in quotes because they don't limit you in any way like uh you Besides the loot you get from them, you're not actually progressing any farther in the game by going to fight them than you would without fighting them. Like, you can do pretty much everything there is to see in the game without even contacting these bosses at all. Uh, like, uh, the Ender Dragon's the only one I would say is kind of a special one, because uh, if you go to the end, then you're pretty much going there to fight him. Okay. And there's not really much else you can do there. But, uh, yeah, like the Wither is something you can just spawn in anywhere, and the Iron, iron Golems are something that you'll come across in these... Uh, uh, randomly spawn villages and something you could create yourself if you wanted to hmm. but otherwise they don't actually limit you in any way okay that's all sort of a lot um, so if you and if it's at all possible is it can you describe minecraft in a nutshell uh, I think it's uh, really the uh, the poster child for uh, sandbox games like it's the sandbox game really uh, I mean you can't get much more open and uh, do whatever you want kind of feel than Minecraft. Fair enough. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Just sandbox, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you say it's endless, and you were describing before. So you just you basically just get put back, you know, at the beginning or whatever. If you beat the Ender Dragon, and you still have all your stuff, is that right? You don't lose anything yeah. in that regard. Yeah, but and by beginning, I, I don't really mean it restarts the game. I mean it just kind of puts you back to the place that you would spawn if you had died. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you uh, can go back to uh, whatever you've built, and it'll still all be there, and everything's as it was before. It's just you'll have a little bit more loot from the dragon and also some more experience for uh, leveling up and all that. Okay. But otherwise, nothing's really changed that much. Yeah. It's just kind of another aspect of the game. It's not really, like, a key point. So do you... I mean, when you're playing it, do you start off sort of in the same world, or is that, you know, are those sort of random? How does how does that work? I mean, is, you know, is each server yeah, have a random uh, world? or? Yeah, uh, you're pretty much never going to see it the same world uh, twice, um, because mm-hmm. it's very, very random, uh, like, it just... But as rounded as you can get, and with it being endless, and everything's going to be a little bit different. The only thing that you see the same is uh, that there's a limited number of biomes, which basically means these regions will have similar aspects to them. Like you're going to come across deserts that have not much water and cactuses and stuff like that, and then you'll come across jungles where they have massive trees and a lot of wildlife and plants and things. And just a lot of variety like that, uh, which gets into much more. There's dozens of different biomes now, but other than that, um, like the similarities in each world between the different biome types, uh, you're not going to find the exact same layout for any world. Mm-hmm. Oh. And every time you find a cave, it's always going to be different. All right, cool. Well, we uh, like we said, um, you had set up uh, a server for the site and. Sir Psycho joined you, but we also had a mystery guest, right? We had a mystery player that joined for one afternoon. So, mystery player, if you're out there, please uh, let us know who you are. Uh, we'd like to give you some credit for playing the game. We'll put you in the show notes. Yeah, we thought it might uh, be RetroRage, but we're not sure because uh, I I saw that someone joined the server in, in the server logs and it uh, gave me a name that was different than anything on our generation. So, I don't know who that might have been. I, could have been someone from the playthrough list, or it could have been some random player who happened across our server. Okay, all right. But, uh, yeah, if you're listening to this and you know that was you uh, in for an hour or two, then just let us know, and we'll put credit in there where credit's due. <laughs> so for week number two, uh, moving on, we played um, Gone Home, um, mm-hmm. and I'll let you give a kind of a brief description of that as well. Yeah, Gone Home is a uh, 2013 title by the Fulbright Company. It's a it's another exploration game, but uh, a bit more structured than Minecraft. It's basically you've come home to an empty house after traveling, and uh, you're trying to explore the house to see where everyone's gone, and just uh, as a player, you're learning about the family who lives there, which, uh, as the character in the game, that's like your, uh, your family. But as a player, uh, you're trying to learn exactly where everyone was and what's going on and all that. Uh, so, it's kind of, it feels like a horror game when you first step into it. Yeah. Um, and uh, the original promo trailer really implied that. It was, uh, if anyone's ever seen the promo trailer, it's completely different than what the final game actually is. Uh, there was a lot of jump scares and just creepy stuff that wasn't in the game at all. Yeah, I was I was wondering that. You had, um, you had sent us a link at one point when we were on Skype talking, and it was a sort of a, you know, a trailer. And, and I watched them, I was like, wow, this is a 
super creepy game. I was like, I'm kind of surprised, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you know, I play survival horror, horror titles. I mean, I love, you know, Resident Evil. I love Parasite Eve. But this was, you know, when you're kind of controlling it that way and kind of moving through a house and things are kind of jumpy, um, you know, it makes you a little weary to play something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was wondering if that was, was that a trailer that the company put out or... Was that this something that um, maybe a fan had maybe put together to make it seem scarier than what it you know what the game actually was? As far as I know, that I think was an original trailer from the company, and I'm pretty sure that they must have just at some point changed their mind and done a 180 on what the game was going to be in the final release. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't looked into it really to confirm that one way or the other, mm-hmm. but. I'm fairly sure that the trailer was official, though, uh, and just an early kind of testing trailer. It wasn't really, like, uh, far into the development cycle. Yeah. It's maybe maybe what they're comfortable with, because a lot of the Fulbright Company guys are ex-2K Marin uh, developers, so, like, they worked on uh, Bioshock 2 DLC Minerva's Den. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, the Bioshock series are, they're, they're pretty creepy games. So maybe that horror thing, um, exploration, was their comfort zone, and something must have pushed them to go in a totally different route. Or maybe it was a means of broadening their audience and getting people interested in this game. Oh, bait and switch. The old bait and switch. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, if if that's the case, I mean, because as we we find out playing the game, it, it is anything, well... It's spooky, I, I, I don't want right? to say it's anything but a horror game because it, it has horror elements to it. Um, you know, when I think of horror, I think of anything that sort of makes you uneasy. And if you classify mm. it in that sense, I think this game makes it, you very uneasy. That. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in a different way than one would use the word horror. But, you know, I, I definitely felt heavily uneasy playing this game. Yeah. I think I would call it psychological horror yeah. because there's uh, nothing really there that's scary, but uh, it's all in your head really as you're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you keep expecting something to be scary. Even if you hadn't seen that trailer, it felt like it was a very scary atmosphere. Yeah, it does give you um, all the uh, ingredients for. for your mind to um, mm-hmm. be anticipated, to be scared. Yeah. And um, You kind of feel a bit tense as you're yeah. to the house. Everything's quiet except you know, if you move something around or throw a tape in a tape deck and play a song... Mm-hmm. Um, it's quiet. There is um, and the thunder going off every once in a while. Yep, there's thunder in the distance, and you know it's in the middle of a storm, so that gives it, you know, that sort of um, everything that's yeah, like quintessential spooky, basically, like squeaky mm. floors and thunderstorms. Right. Big house, middle yeah. of the night. Yeah. Secret rooms, compartments, mm-hmm. and yeah, the such. So, so yeah. No dumb waiters. Dumb waiters are pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> Dumb waiters are creepy. <laughs> and uh, oh, and also uh, a little more specific, but uh, there's the one room with the uh, uh, just the TV with that uh, storm warning uh, message going off. Uh, that uh, typical uh, emergency signal thing on the TV there, and uh, just sort of adds. Yeah, to the I remember being thing. a little unsettled by that. Yeah. Yeah. Though I think it's just related to the wind warning uh, with the storm. Um. And uh, so once you get into the house and you're looking around, uh, the the actual plot of the game, because this one's a bit more plot-heavy, is uh, basically you're reading the diary of your sister. Uh, you're uh, being a bit of a peeping Tom, I guess, and uh, like looking into your sister's diary after you come home and there's no one around. 
And the game doesn't outright say this until the very end, uh, but uh, it's just as you're walking through the house, you get more dialogue from it, and it's reading entries out of this diary. And so through this, you get to hear the sister's story as she's coming of age uh, in uh, this new house that she just moved into and uh, how she's dealing with things at school and uh, her relationship with this new friend she met, Lonnie. And it's just a, a really puts you into the shoes of this teenage girl uh, that's discovering her sexuality, I guess, in a very conservative family. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you don't only get that, you, you also get a secondary story, too, with the mother, right? And, well, and the, and the father, to some lesser extent. Yeah, yeah, to some lesser extent. And the uncle. <laughs> there's also a little bit of a thing going on with him, too. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, a few subplots that uh, the game doesn't outright say like you know, the dialogue is all based around the sister, yeah. and then you get these other little things through the items in the environment by reading the notes and the books and yeah. uh, different things like that. Yeah, which add quite a lot to the story. I, I really like when games do that. All the details uh, are stories in themselves. I mean, I, I think the uh, unhappy uh, place at their home is kind of contributes to um, the sisters. Uh, discovery of herself um mm-hmm. you know because the, the the father is um a struggling writer right. and the mother is having an affair with a co-worker mm-hmm. so there's forest mm-hmm. ranger right yeah something like that yeah 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 the mom was a forest ranger manager i believe it was yes. something like that yeah but yeah it's it's definitely not a happy home i like that's the vibe that i got Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's a very voyeuristic game. It was, you know, you, you you're you're in this girl's shoes. You're going through an empty house, and you're rifling through all of these belongings, and you're learning things about your family that you never knew. It's it, it's sort of sort of an underbelly game, you know. Mm. Um, you know, it's like what secrets sort of lie beneath. It you know? it, it really is, and it's it's like it makes me think that. People aren't how we see them. People really are the uh, the sum of the secrets that they keep. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I think you know putting you um, sort of in this um, um, first person perspective not only lets you take on the role of this character, this female character, but it also lets you be in control. Mm-hmm. You as the first person going through this house, a house that may be similar and common to your house. You know, just every day. You know, you're mm-hmm. rifling through the fridge. You, you can look at the ingredients or the, the calories, you know, on the box of cereal or on milk. You know, it's that highly yeah, detailed. Yeah, I love, I love that level of detail. It just uh, makes it so much more realistic. Instead of some blurry little blob of text mm-hmm. on the back, you can actually read every little line of text. Everything you don't really care about <laughs> yeah. is there. And, it, and, it's, and it's sort of an everyman game, you know. It, and as you're, you know, kind of as you're playing through it, you know, you kind of realize that there are secrets in your own household and things, you know, that people probably don't know about um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that you keep to yourself. And it, and it may not be the most shocking things, but at the same time, there are things in your in your home and that go on in your home that don't make it out to the rest of the world. And, that, and that's kind of the, you know, the odd feeling or the, uh, I, I guess, the thing that makes the game really cohesive for the, the player, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I really like the, uh, uh, so this is at 1995, the ni- uh, 90s nostalgia. They did a great oh, job yeah, of yeah. Uh, all the uh, 
90s elements like the SNES games <laughs> yeah, and yeah, VHS Super tapes Nintendo. And, <laughs> yeah and uh, just uh, all of these little things that uh, you'd only find in the 90s and uh, they uh, pretty much nailed it on the head there yeah yeah so I, I would describe this game as fairly linear yeah I think so it's 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 very linear I mean it doesn't matter how you get to the end you'll, you'll still yeah. get there hmm there's only one yeah. ending. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of exploration that goes on and on, you know, throughout the game, and you have to get through a certain area, unlock a, you know, a combination to a locker, find a key, um, you know, do something to access a new area, and it and it's ultimately pushing you or funneling you toward this ending, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I think the only thing that's a little bit non-linear is just the order that you can get the dialogue in, which mm-hmm. kind of affects the order you get the story in. Um, right. There are certain areas where you could access multiple rooms, and through that I was getting some dialogue that uh, then I found more later, and it made the earlier dialogue feel out of place a bit. Okay. Like, I was finding stuff about uh, when uh, the uh, uh, sister uh, was uh, just meeting her friend Lonnie, and then I find another dialogue later when they just moved in. Mm-hmm. And so some of the stuff uh, was a bit out of order. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel like it was uh, worse for it. I think it was just uh, a little more natural. Like you're yeah, that, that would definitely the story add in the order the, you're looking uh, in the house. Um, I don't want to say realism, but that's the only word that I can think of. Uh, it mm-hmm. it uh, adds to the relatability, I guess that's a good way to put it, to that yeah. game. Yeah. Because if you were to come home to your home in, in, in the middle of the night and nobody's there, you're you're not going to find all these uh, artifacts in chronological order. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see. Uh, I guess uh, the major element of the story here that we've been kind of dancing around is the... Uh, the fact that uh, the sister Sam is a uh, uh, she's basically a, le- a lesbian and uh, she's kind of in the closet right now and uh, the story is slowly building it up uh, but uh, it's really putting you in the shoes of how uh, teenage kids are dealing with this sort of thing with their families and mm-hmm. and how they're kind of hiding it from uh, people at school and basically what they have to experience uh, going through all that. Uh, so how did you guys uh, feel about all that? Was um, the, the the lesbian aspect, was that hidden? Or was that just sort of like very slowly discovered by Sam herself that, you know, she, she says, oh, I met Lonnie today. She seems like a cool chick. And, you know, the next you know, monologue could be, um, oh, we hung out at, at the arcade today. And then it, it, it's sort of like they start as acquaintances and then friends. And then Sam says, you know, I think I'm starting to have feelings for her. This is really weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it starts as that. But then once it uh, once Sam's figure out what's uh, going on there for herself, then it becomes more of a hidden secret. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know there's definitely some things where uh, the, uh, the dialogue is saying uh, that the family doesn't really know and uh, she's saying, uh, don't judge me on the things you find in the house uh, when you read that note at the beginning. And just various things like that imply that it's, it is a bit of a secret. Mm-hmm. Which I think is pretty representative of how people usually are dealing with that in real life, at least at first. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's an important game for that reason. I think that there's a, a certain community of gamers who can probably, you know, relate to that. And it's kind of refreshing. Mm-hmm. Are, are nice to see that sort of thing in a game, you know, something that sort of relates to, you know, sort of younger generation, someone having to deal with, with these types of problems. Yeah, I, yeah. I think um, you have to admit that that was probably a risky move 
on uh, on Fulbright Company to to incorporate yeah. this into their story, and because this it's an industry basically dominated by you know dude bros and sporty sports. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, you know, I, I I do think, and and I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of people would find. Um, you know, comfort and perhaps encourage encouragement and, you know, being able to relate to, to the content of this game and, and you know, wouldn't, they, they wouldn't feel alienated. They might feel a little better about themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's nice that they're trying to be a little more open to different uh, demographics, basically, and not so much uh, the uh, typical uh, macho men uh, that the main characters of many games are. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, there's uh, I was reading up on the forums for this game after uh, finishing it. There's a couple things that I never really caught on to. Uh, one of them Floyd already had mentioned, and another one that none of us have mentioned yet, but uh, uh, the mom having an affair thing. Did you guys catch on to that uh, pretty early on like while playing, or was this something that kind of went over your head? Because I, I sort of had an inkling of something there, but I didn't really clue into it uh, while playing. I, I caught on to it fairly early. I think the the first time I, I caught on to it was going into the mother's bedroom. The mother, I guess the mother and father's bedroom, I guess they shared a bedroom. That was kind of a something that I, could, I couldn't really tell, you know, because I definitely, you know, you get clued into sort of the, the marital problems mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you find, you know, you find, you know, all sorts of clues. I mean, you know, pornography and you know those sorts of things but then you you know you sort of find the letter you start getting the letters from the the mother um the mother's friend right that's that's where you kind of put that relationship together and i I don't know that i'm unsure as to whether it was an actual affair that went on or it was more of a kind of an attraction um, attraction Mm -hmm. right and and something that she had been talking to her friend about you know obviously uh, Maybe a fantasy, right? A fantasy. Obviously, the the mom and the dad were, you know, obviously having problems, and you know, with the struggling job, and you know, things of that nature. Probably, mm-hmm. you know, the, the male trying to feel like he's the provider in the relationship. You know, the the old, <laughs> you know, the old hat sort of cultural yeah. male being the provider, and he's not being able to because his books are not selling, mm-hmm. and you know, she's she's getting promoted. Contrast. You know, you, you find out that she's getting promoted. Uh, several yeah. times, um, but yeah, I, I I did not feel like that there was an actual affair. I, I thought that there was, you know, some inklings toward it or some attraction there, but I I, I didn't get that overall sense of that going on. I, I think what uh, tipped me off. I mean, I I'm pretty sure that I picked up on um, at least the attraction pretty earlier on after finding like the mother's uh, like di- diary entries and stuff. Um, but the, the letters between the mother and the friend, uh, didn't the friend practically encourage the mother to, to go off and, uh, you know, gallivant with this other man? Well, there's something about a movie at so, one point, yeah. right? There's yeah. something about going to see a movie or something at one point, And, you know, you, I don't think you ever get any sort of answers to whether that actually happened or not, but it seems like it was sort of, it got, it, it almost seems like it got to a certain point and then... You know, it was kind of quashed in a way, right? Yeah. One thing I think that um, I never found, but uh, the forum topic that I was reading on it mentioned was that apparently in the air conditioning dock somewhere there's a receipt uh, that uh, is apparently clear that it was uh, the 
uh, mother going uh, on a date with some other man than the husband. Oh, okay. And uh, so maybe that was the movie that was being mentioned. I'm not sure, but uh, this was mentioned in the forum topic, and I didn't see it myself to be sure. Mm-hmm. But that could be uh, something cluing in that maybe there was more going on there. But yeah, it's definitely not clear exactly what it is. It might not be an affair. It might just be a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something there, and it seems like the, uh, the friend of the mother is definitely encouraging it. Mm-hmm. You can't blame this woman for having eyes for another man. I mean, her husband is, is a conspiracy theorist. I mean, he's trying to research <laughs> yeah. who, who killed JFK and, you know, yeah. are aliens real? Yeah, looking at some of the notes on his uh, uh, table there, it's like, uh, is JFK not JFK? Yeah. <laughs> Other stupid stuff like that. It's like, uh, definitely question her judgment with wanting to be with this guy. But. And wasn't there, like, sort of a reference to uh, The Shining on the typewriter? Something like I, that. I think that was in the I'm initial sure. trailer. Okay. Okay. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, the, the crazy promo yeah. trailer. You All might right. be thinking of. I thought there was like some like note or something around the uh, you know sort of inkling toward that you know with the typewriter where he's writing the same thing over and over again. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think that was in Jack the. Boy. <laughs> I think yeah, I think that was in the trailer. Okay. But I think the uh, final game has it does have that same typewriter uh, thing there, but I think it's a different uh, line of text. Okay. I don't think it's actually a repeating message. Yeah. And it seems like toward the end you get some sort of resolution, like some sort of family resolution for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the, the mother and father are now in counseling, and then, you know, they... I, I didn't remember that. Maybe I must have I must have missed that um, mm-hmm. item. Yeah. I'm not sure if I ever saw something about counseling, but I did see something, um, like a couple books on... Uh, how to improve uh, family relations or something like that, uh, how to fix a marriage. I, I, I remember kind of, finding uh, books, books that, um, like, like oh, family help books, that, you know, how, how, yeah. how to communicate to a teenager and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found those, but I think there was definitely some marriage-related ones, too. Yeah, I there think were. In the, uh, the ensuite end. bathroom of the parents' mm-hmm. house. Yeah. Or uh, parents' bedroom, I mean. The only endgame thing that I found was, and, and this might have just been that, you know, um, mandatory monologue that you hear and it's, it's uh sam saying that um you know you're you're probably coming home to an empty house and you know uh, lonnie and i have run away and you know we're happy mm-hmm. and you know i love you <laughs> yeah yeah i think the uh the ending actually uh, i i think it kind of times out where the ending entry of the diary and the ending of this and the game there mm-hmm. is supposed to be uh, like uh, she wrote that last diary entry just maybe 20 minutes before uh, you as the player got home mm. and uh, she had just run off that night and so it and that's why everything feels kind of rushed and there's still like an open piece of box on the table and everything's kind of messy yeah because it literally just happened mm-hmm. right Right. I, I do seem to remember finding some stuff about like sort of counseling toward the end. And then we see a there, there's also a letter about the the father's book being picked up. And so he's mm-hmm. he is, you know, and subsequently dropped. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. There is a couple letters related to the books and his publishing uh, house that he's working with. Right. Uh, one thing kind of branching off of the uh, conspiracy theorist uh, dad uh, is uh, the theory that I also found on these forums. Uh, this is only the last of the ones I found off of here. But this one theory says, uh, and this sounds plausible, that uh, the dad was maybe molested by his uncle. 
Uh, the uncle who was the former owner of the home, Uncle Mason, mm. uh, mentioned occasionally in the game. Uh, so I'll just read off this quote here from the sure. theory. It says, Terry was molested by his uncle, the former owner of the home, in 1963, incidentally the same year that JFK was shot. Since that incident as a child, he's repressed the memory of being molested or chosen to deal with the trauma by fixating on JFK's death. So it makes sense that every one of his novels is about going back to that year and trying to change the past and prevent a tragedy. Huh. So I don't know, there's not too much evidence for it, but some of his evidence here was why was the uncle measuring Terry's height in the creepy basement? Um, the last height marking is Thanksgiving 1963, probably when the uncle was caught. Also the same time as JFK assassination. Uh, there's a children's toy hidden in the dark room at the end of the hall next to the safe. This is probably where Terry, Terry was molested. Uh, the uncle apologizes to his sister for something in a, a letter, but it's obvious the family has shunned him. And the uncle has become a shut-in and a morphine or heroin addict, probably after the fact. So the the addict element, I think, comes in from the safe in the basement if you find the uh, combination to open that. I think there was some needles and some meds in there. And... Uh, some of the other things do kind of fit in with uh, what I was seeing throughout the game, um, especially the letter mm-hmm. and the um, measuring the kid's height in the basement. Like, it just kind of all seems a little odd. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a like community urban legend that someone went insane in that house, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's why they call Sam the psycho house yeah. girl at school. Yeah. So, is is the uncle the one who? went off the deep end maybe okay yeah, yeah maybe this is uh, what the uh, uh local urban legend came from is uh, that the uncle was arrested for this or something and mm-hmm. kind of kids came up with some sort of conspiracy around right. it. right yeah and you also have the ghost hunts too so i mean maybe this house has a deeper history than just the uncle mm-hmm. right well i think the ghost hunts were related to the uncle because i'm pretty sure that like there's the one room where they're doing this kind of seance thing with a Ouija board and right. uh, I think they were trying to revive the uncle like they have his picture on the table oh, okay. because I think at the time he's long since deceased right I mean I, I think they just have that you know childish fascination with you know a the occult and and b something really uh sinister and, and criminal so mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a big stretch to say that it was the uncle who um you know, molested the the father as when when he was young. Um, mm-hmm. I will remain skeptical on that, and in, in like until someone can really come up with good evidence. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a bit of a stretch, but uh, I feel like the evidence might be there. Um, it's just uh, it's not explicit. I mean, there, yeah. There's evidence to say that the uncle did go uh, crazy. Um, you know, to to say his um, his addiction got the better of him that that definitely does right. add up. Like, it kind of stacks the cards in that favor. But um, hmm. no, it's it's still for me a stretch to link um, the father's preoccupation with JFK and a, a less than happy childhood. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sort of wraps up going home. Unless you guys have anything else that you want to talk about. Sorry we're ending on <laughs> indecent acts um, enacted on children. Our, our well, apologies. Don't, don't, play this, uh, don't play this podcast at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, before we move on, though, I do have one last thing I kind of want to touch on is the ending. Um, 
Did you did you guys uh, think the ending was fitting? Like, uh, do you think it was a happy ending or not so happy? I mean, uh, you've got this kid running away from home when she's obviously pretty young. Um, Before I answer that question, I'm going to ask, can this story end happily? It's hard to say, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot going on that's not so happy in the household. It ended very appropriately, and... Mm-hmm. I, as the player, was really happy receiving that ending for the game. I won't say that it justified the voyeurism that that you'd been uh, feeling the whole time, but it did neatly wrap up um, the whole plot that you'd be you you you've been being fed about uh, about Sam. So I, right. I yeah. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, it wrapped up that. I think the only thing uh, I feel is a little bit sad is that. Uh, both Lonnie and Sam kind of give up their um, their life goals, basically, to follow this relationship. And uh, Lonnie was planning on joining the army, and uh, she did that at the last minute. Sam was planning on being a writer, just like her dad, and she did that too. It, uh, well, I mean, that's at least in my opinion speculation that they dropped all of that to go be together. For Sam, yeah, I could see that. But Lonnie was pretty explicit that uh, she was on the way to the army, uh, like to be gone for good. And then and her feelings for, she for Sam around, basically. brought her back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think on her front, at least, it was pretty clear. But yeah, Sam is a little bit less clear. Um, the only evidence you have for her career is just some acceptance letters to a college. I think yeah, yeah. she she did not go to the college. That's for sure. Not yet, no. But uh, I I think as a recipient. Of this media, this 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 story, it it was really it it was appropriate. It was um, I in my opinion, it was the only way that it could end. You know yeah. that um, yeah. Sam and and Lonnie ended up happy happy together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sure they had to alienate themselves from society at large, but that is the price that they were willing to pay. Well, I think it's. I agree with that to an extent. I think it's very open-ended as to where whether they end up, quote, happy together. I feel like this is sort of a continuation, you know, of their story. I mean, who who knows what is to be, you know, if that's to work out. Well, that or, that's true, really. This is the beginning yeah. of their story. Right, right. So, yeah. I, for me, the ending, I like the ending. I thought it was appropriate. I, I have mixed yeah, I like feelings about the ending, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why. Um, in, in one sense, I, I really like the the freedom of the ending and that this is a girl who's going out and, you know, living her life and doing what she wants to do uh, to make herself happy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the ultimate goal in life, right, is for all of us to be happy and we should, you know, do what we need to do to be happy. The second way I look at this game is as a parent, <laughs> and I know, you know, that's, and that's just natural, you know, for someone like me, yeah. you know, you've got it. That's actually an interesting perspective to hear from how you uh, thought about this game. Right. Like thinking about it, if uh, your your kids were doing something like this too. Right, and and I've got a daughter. Mm-hmm. Would I be upset about the relationship? No. Um, would I be upset that my daughter couldn't talk to me or ran away? Uh, yeah, I would. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what's a little upsetting to me about the game as a parent. Um, but you know, ultimately, I, I I'm with. Floyd on this, and I think with both of you, is that I think the the ending was you know very appropriate and needed to go, you mm-hmm. know where it did, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of kind of leave it kind of open ended, but that it was heading in sort of a, a positive direction, right? right? For for some members of the family at least. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it felt like the family was uh, sort of not very supportive of her and just generally not a good environment for her, it seemed like. Uh, right. And, like, if um, she made it clear that, no, this wasn't just a phase and this was going to stay, uh, that maybe they would have kicked her out anyways. Like, they didn't seem to be the very uh, supportive type of people. And uh, so it's almost better for her that she did leave, uh, in a way. Was the context of... Sam and Lonnie's uh, departure from the home that the parents had gone for the day for, for well, at least, you know, we, we can only extrapolate that they left the house. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought I got is that they were at a, a retreat to help with their marriage. So, that's yeah, what I, that's, I saw that somewhere. Yes, that's where I was getting the counseling mm-hmm. from. Yes. Right. But that's, anyway, that's while the parents were away, that's when Sam had invited Lonnie over. Could mm-hmm. explain, you know, the pizza and everything like that, and uh, you know their their secret room in the, uh, in, like below the basement or whatever it was, and then up in the attic they had a, um, sort of like their little oasis. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of any other way to describe it, but it, it must have been, like uh, like Jamie has has said, you know, shortly before the main character arrives home, that Sam and Lonnie decided to run off together yeah yeah i think that uh fits in with what happened pretty well and that actually this is a little bit off topic but uh, that just reminded me of something that seems to fit with uh the theme we have going on this month is that um when we say main character we're talking about the one the player is controlling mm-hmm. whereas uh, the one we're hearing all the story from is a third person um uh, in both this stanley parable and dear esther they're all uh, possibly a third person well uh i just want to ask you guys did you who did you think was the main character of gone home was it the was it the person you were controlling in voyeuring through this house or was it sam to me i think it was sam really i mean katie was there you were controlling her but she seemed very passive like you didn't really learn too much about her except for the fact that she seemed to be kind of a model student and some uh, something of uh, uh, the favorite in the family, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, uh, there wasn't really much exposition on her, and it was really geared towards Sam. No, yeah, I think uh, definitely Sam was the main character. It's sort of like um, it's it's not revealed until the very end that the person you are controlling is not the main character. It's sort of like uh, I can maybe compare it to uh, No Country for Old Men. Where the whole time you're thinking the main characters are uh, uh, Antoine Chigurh and um, I think his name is Josh Llewellyn. Brolin. Josh Brolin and uh, and um, oh, what's his name? What's his name? He's the, the... Tommy Lee <laughs> Jones. Sure I haven't actually seen that. No, but yeah, but it, at, at the end, at the end, it turns out to be Tommy Lee Jones who's the main character, right? Because right? he's, huh. he's he's the one who's really the central pillar of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like um, in. Uh, gone home. Sam is the, the the key figure in everything. Yeah, a bit of a third uh, person perspective on uh, the story here. All right. So I think we could probably move on to Stanley Parable now. All right. So for week three, we played um, Stanley Parable for PC. Um, and again, I'll just let Jamie go ahead and tell you a little about it. All right. So this is a uh, sort of short game. Uh, we'll get into that uh, by uh, the company called Galactic Cafe. 
Uh, it's uh, originally released as a mod for the Source Engine in July of 2011, and it's got its own full standalone release in 2013. Um, it's got multiple endings. It's uh, very odd, uh, is the best way of describing it. Uh, you're constantly repeating the game, uh, going back to the beginning, and literally doing the same thing over and over, but with slight differences every time, based on previous choices. And it's a uh, story in an office building, following uh, Stanley, who is working a very boring uh, day job, until uh, at one point something happens where everyone disappears, and uh, so you're just being uh, led around the office by this narrator, and uh, he's kind of describing what you're doing while at the same time describing what you would like you to do. And uh, you're exploring the office, trying to figure out what happened, where everyone went, and you're also finding out these weird secrets about your workplace that you didn't know. And it's got a very almost Matrix feel to it uh, with uh, the sort of outside world versus the inside world. Kind of. Um, I mean, the whole time while I was playing uh, Stanley Parable was that this game is subverting and challenging the whole definition of what a game is. And yeah. it kind of used um, existentialism as a vessel for that. It's sort of like, at, at the end of the day, everything was rather meaningless. Um, and, and Stanley is rather insignificant in the whole grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. He's just one cog in the whole yeah. wheel. It describes in the past tense things that the player or then I should say the narrator is describing events in the past tense that the player is currently experiencing. Yeah. It gives you a sense that your fate is set, but uh, at the same time you still have control and the, the narrator changes what he said based on what you do. Yeah. Um, like the, the example that I think of is when you reach a big room and you have two doors and, and the narrator says, Stanley entered the door on the right. And if you don't, the narrator will say something rather witty. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably touch upon the humor in this game later, but um, you know, it, it gives you it gives you the illusion that you have choice when really mm. every possible twist and turn and deviation has already been scripted, and and, and that's why yeah. I mean it really challenges what is a game. You know, it it challenges that. Um, uh, open-ended, non-linear um, concept. Yeah. I wouldn't say that the narrator is unreliable. I think the, I, I guess, would be um, sort of mischievous or uh, a, and, and pretty much like omniscient, right? And pretty mm -hmm. much knows everything and what's going on and what's behind every corner and every turn. And so. it, it's sort of like, and this is even one of the endings, you experience this like to, at least to me it looks like an out-of-body experience where you will see Stanley in a room or he'll be wandering around it and sort of like you know scientists watching lab rats go through a maze hmm yeah it did have that feel just walking through the whole thing uh, like uh, you're following the cheese and trying to figure out uh, where the uh, the ending mm -hmm. is yeah it, just, it reminded me of Truman's show is what it reminded me of this game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see that. I, I wasn't able to, to link it to any anything like that, but I really thought this was like a like a British uh, style Douglas Adams style humor. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it had a lot of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, sort of jokes mm-hmm. in it and wit and humor. The, the thing that I found interesting was uh, really uh, just uh, that, uh, like you said, uh, the narrator seems to know everything, but then there's certain points where he seems to be confused well, <laughs> in a very comical way. He's confused because you've deviated from what he's told you to do. Yeah, and it's broken and, through his script. Yeah, and he and says, you well, like, oh, find oh, let me uh, go to page 23. Oh, no, that... Oh, that event is not in here. Yeah. It's like, oh, this wasn't supposed to happen here yet. Go back and find the story. Yeah. And, and like, uh, the, uh, uh, the, I think it was uh, the plot line or the storyline. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Uh, but uh, he's got this line, a uh, yellow line he draws through the office. And you have to follow it and it starts doing crazy I, things. I think so. He's like, he's no, like, no, no. You are not playing this game correctly. Here, yeah. I've laid out a, a yellow plot line for you. Mm-hmm. And it's a literal line on the yeah. floor that you just follow, and eventually it starts going off. Oh, it like goes up the wall and, and on the and, ceiling, and yeah, through the events, and, and he's just like, uh, okay, forget about the plot line. He's not helping anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, uh, what, what did you guys think of the game? Um, of the four that uh, that we played this month, it's definitely it's tied for my favorite, and our next game also holds that. Uh, honor for me um yeah i think these two uh, uh the last two here are definitely the most interesting anyways mm-hmm. uh, i think they have the most uh, possibilities to the story and uh, the most interpretive anyways yeah. i would i would say that this one was probably of the three that i played um minecraft being the one that i did not play i would definitely say this one was my least favorite can you tell us why okay. <laughs> yeah, i'm interested I don't know. I, I, the style of humor, um, I, I just didn't find very amusing. It was it was okay. Um, you know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the multiple endings, you know, based sort of on player's choice. Um, I, I think I'm, the style of gamer I am, I, I like something a little more finite. And, hmm. you know, I, I, while I appreciate games, um, you know, that have multiple endings or better endings and things of that nature I, I felt like this game was just just way too fragmented and, and silly and yeah it um, was it was definitely silly um, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I won't go so far as to say it was fragmented um, it was just sort of like it was if you went down path A you got ending A if you went down path B you got right. ending B it, it's not like um, these uh I'm like I'm gonna say quote unquote open ended games that oh, they're, right. they're 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 sort of scripted open endings. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like if you rescued this person or if you did this um, series of quests, then you will get uh, you know this will affect your ending, right? Right, right. K- kind of like a kind of like Chrono Trigger. And, and I guess what I mean by fragmented is not in that sense. I mean it, it's very linear in the sense of. Like, if you follow a certain route, this is the ending you're going to get. I guess what I mean about Fragment yeah. is just sort of all over the place. There's just so many different endings. It's so, it, it you know, it is all over the place and, and, and fragmented as far as not having a linear storyline. You know, even like something like Chrono Trigger, yeah, I mean, you can have different endings, but you're going to get a different ending based on how you finish the game. 
you know, right, or, mm -hmm. or what you do through certain Which events. Which is really interesting because... But you don't end up, but you don't end up at the same place. Yeah. Uh, what, what's yeah. interesting about the Stanley Parable is your ending is pretty much determined by your first few actions. Right? Yeah. So it's yeah, not like in, uh, in, in a typical game, like, since we're playing Chrono Trigger this month too, we'll just use that as an example. Your ending is pretty much determined by what you do late in the game. I mean, some events are dictated by early actions, but um, it's just sort of like, if you, if you did not fight Magus, he will be in your party. Uh, you know, if you do not revive Chrono, you will get a different ending. Um, really, in, in Stanley Parable, the, pretty much the very first two or three things you do sets you on that path to get that ending. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, I feel like it's kind of uh, sort of similar to time traveling stories, uh, where it has that sense of you've uh, made a choice, and then suddenly uh, the other choice is a parallel dimension where uh, it has its own branch, and then your choice is another branch, and down your choice uh, it sets up another two choices. That might and it's be just kind of even just, one uh, of the endings of the game. <laughs> quite possibly, yeah. Uh, and they had so many that I never even got to. Uh, but it feels like that's what it is. Like, uh, you're uh, making a choice and it kind of closes off the, the other choice and uh, it sets up two more choices and you're picking a linear route through a maze of choices yeah. really um, right. and then uh, the time traveling is sort of like you're going back in time to reset it but things have kind of been slightly altered based on your well, previous well, that choices. going back in time thing uh, now that I think about it, is very reminiscent to Groundhog Day right like you keep going back until you did everything quote-unquote right yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, that makes sense. What did you think of the achievements? I mean, this is a this is a big, um, rather unimportant and comedic aspect of the game. I know that's very oxymoronic, but uh, anyway, I, I think the only thing I really paid attention to with the achievements was the uh, click on door four three zero five times. That one was pretty great <laughs> I, 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 I did that, that achievement too yeah basically it makes you reassess who you are as a video game player at least I did um, mm -hmm. because with achievement list you have it all black and white in front of you you know and it uh, at least with the Stanley parable it, it kind of reminded me of how pointless these achievements really are um, yeah, and, and, and how that, uh, all this stuff is meaningless. Yeah. Oh, really? Old people like me can already tell you those things. So you should listen <laughs> yeah. to your elders. <laughs> <laughs> well, go go you know tell who, who's uh, who's the achievement hunter on our site. Israel. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, yeah. Go go tell them. Of course, you, of course, you're also talking to a former uh, World of Warcraft addict. So, when it comes to things like yeah. achievements, uh, I have a reason to probably to dislike them more than anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, anyway, I think uh, yeah, a lot of them are really facetious, and a, a lot of the events that you have to go through to get these simple achievements are really long-winded. Mm-hmm. I really just liked uh, the way the narrator was getting so excited about the door 4301. Uh, it keeps building up to this I, Yeah, no, I, I kind of like that, too. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, really? You thought that there was only going to be five clicks on this door? Yeah, that's, that's sort of how it starts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some really weird achievements in that game. It's like, play the game on a Tuesday, or 
you know, play for 40 hours. Yeah, I never really looked into most of them. But, uh, yeah, they were definitely different than normal, that's to say, at least. So do you feel this game has sort of a postmodern element to it, where it's sort of making fun of itself, in a sense? Oh, definitely. Bit, yeah. yeah. I think that's Yeah, it's definitely that's what a they bit uh, meta. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, for me, that was sort of one of the more annoying things about the game. I just, you know... I don't know. From an outsider's perspective, there are things about gaming that I already know are, you know, or at least I feel that are a little bit annoying to me as a gamer. So I, I guess I felt like I didn't need a game pointing it out or, or trying to be funny about it. Um, mm. So, I mean, that that's just, you know, and, and again, that's just me. I mean, that's just, you know, just who I am and, mm. you know, my thoughts on, you know, the game and, and what it was, you know, so... And, um, yeah, it's definitely not for no, everyone. But, right, uh, right. It's, and no, ga- and no game is right. No, I'm sure there's but some of these are a little bit uh, less for everyone than the average one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there that dislike Parasite Eve. I mean, those people would be ignorant, but they're probably <laughs> out there, right? They're wrong, but they're out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I think we we talked a little bit about um, you know the the narrator as like an omniscient character but what did you think of because basically that there's not much to this game it was you know very little interaction um but i, I quite enjoyed uh the, the like the narrator's voiceover work mm-hmm. yeah he's really mm-hmm. good which is a good way for us to segue into uh dear Esther, because it is the same <laughs> voice actor Oh, really? Yeah, that's something I didn't know until you uh, pointed out just before we got on air here. It's really interesting. Wow. Um, the style of uh, the dialogue and the way he uses his voice is quite a bit different mm-hmm. in both of them, so I didn't even notice. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm kind of glad that you picked these two games, and especially that you put them right beside each other, because um, even though they're made by two different uh, development teams, even though you, ha- you have that uh, one voice actor overlapping in each project, it's a nice juxt- juxtaposition of uh, really lighthearted, whimsical, um, non-serious, self-aware uh, atmosphere beside something very melancholic and dreary and, I don't know, um, how, how would you... Uh... Let's start off by, you know, introducing D-Restress. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah, we've gotten a little bit too... You're trying uh, to take my job, uh, Floyd? Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope I pass the audition. Yeah. Please sound off in, in the comments. Stanley Parable has uh, gotten us into a bit too much of a mixed-up uh, story-ordering thing here. <laughs> the game entered um, our lives. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the game, Jamie? So, Dear Esther, it's a 2012 commercial release uh, from a mod that originally came out in 2008, also a Source Engine mod, just like uh, Stanley Parable. Um, it's a very non-game game, which I think we'll get into, uh, but uh, it's basically an interactive short story, is how I like to look at it. And you're exploring this island, walking around, you get different pieces of dialogue, and you're just trying to f- kind of figure out uh, what is happening through the dialogue and a little bit through the environment, but for the most part, it's the dialogue that is key. 
and uh, you're uh, trying to find out uh, what happened uh, with this car crash and who's at fault, um, who the narrator actually is, because it's not clear who you are, because that's not clear either, and uh, if the uh, island you're on is even real, different things like that. Everything is so, you know, hazy, yeah. Yeah, it's all ambiguous, and it seems intentional too. Oh, absolutely. There's so many theories about this game. There's things like uh, maybe you're Esther uh, walking through in a coma after the car crash. Maybe you're uh, the husband uh, walking through. Maybe you're Paul. Uh, a lot of biblical references. Uh, sir, what were you guys' takeaway opinions on uh, this game? Like, Do you have any ideas of your own of what was going on? Yeah, I, I certainly do. The game to me seemed like... Of course, you know, it seems to be sort of steeped in reality, but then again, so many unnatural things going on that that doesn't seem possible as you move through the game. Um, you know, at the beginning, you kind of, you're set up, you know, with the, the little hut, you know, that, you know, around the shoreline, and it just seems that everything gets a lot more fragmented and as far as the stuff you find. Um, you know, at first it's sort of, you know, these, like, dwellings as you make your way up the hill. Um, and then you, you start running into strange things like odd wreckage. Um, you kind of, you're kind of always wondering how you actually got to the island. Mm-hmm. And all of these people that lived here in the past, all of these names you're getting. Um, and then, sort of midway through the game, you you come across the cave. It's just bright cave. And the, the cave is, is where things start to get weird. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, yeah. The game seems to start off somewhat rooted in reality. Like nothing's too weird mm-hmm. yet, but the farther the along you go, the, uh, everything seems to deteriorate, mm-hmm. and reality seems to blend in with uh, this uh, hallucinogenic or dream world. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, it does become really um, like ethereal at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, I, I, my take on the game is that not that. It's a dream, but it's part of the subconscious. We're, we're looking at a man's yeah. subconscious here. And the characters are, to me, are representations of his subconscious. They're not actually characters. They're, they're, um, they're facets of himself. Right. Um, he speaks a lot about he speaks a, a lot about Donnelly at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then, after going through the cave and taking that sort of, if you will, that sort of leap of faith that makes you go down into the water, right? Mm-hmm. there's no turning back, and it sort of changes, and you sort of put Donnelly behind, which Donnelly is more of a, I would say, a negative aspect, right? Okay. Whereas Paul is more of the positive part, and you sort of take on this antithesis of sort of Paul. Mm-hmm. And I, and you guys had asked me on the forums, well, what do you think of the game? And I had said, well, I'm, I'm trying to piece it all together. And you guys, which were, is very difficult to yeah. do, <laughs> right? Right. And you were like, well, maybe you need to, because I, I didn't play the game. I watched the playthrough uh, for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys said maybe you need to watch another one. Maybe you didn't get everything, and maybe you just didn't have enough information to put anything together. And for me, that that wasn't the issue. The issue for me was being able to sort of look at these names and trace these things, you know, mm-hmm. after I had played. And of course, there's a there's a heavy biblical reference here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
uh, heavy biblical significance. Um, Paul, of course, was not originally named Paul, but was named Saul, and he was going to D Damascus to actually help round up and persecute Christians in Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, um, a bright light shone on the road, and he saw the image of Christ, which blinded him for three days. Mm -hmm. He went into town um, and found Christ's apostles and converted to Christianity and changed his name to Paul from Saul. Mm -hmm. changed, it, changed it to Paul. Yeah, there's lots lots of references of that in the game, too. Like, they have direct quotes from the Bible right. um, along yeah, the yeah, cliffside um, at the right. end. I kind of obsessively tried to find these uh, passages written on the cliff walls. And mm -hmm. um, one of them is, light from heaven shone around him. Mm -hmm. you know, and as he was proceeding on his journey, mm -hmm. definitely there's this sense of going on on that journey, whether it's some sort of like spiritual journey mm -hmm. or, uh, or a metaphysical journey, um, you know, uh, like a, a journey in into the self in, in, in right. search of like understanding what I got out of it was that um, the narrator, who, who whose identity is rather vague, although I do think that the narrator might be Paul, and he's referring to himself in the third okay. person. Um, I think this island is his purgatory, and these events from his life come up, and, and they're all in his journey towards atonement. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's him coming to grips with the car crash that... Yeah, I'm trying to make peace absolutely. with his faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, he, he, can't, uh, he can't move on until he's at peace with himself, and uh, in, until he can admit... His role? Yeah, his role in essentially the, 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 the fate of Esther. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we do get the sense that this was a um, uh, impairment, impaired accident, don't we? Because we know that yeah, he is there's a, a lot of references mm -hmm. to alcohol. alcohol and drinking. Mm -hmm. So I think we we sort of get that reference. Um, and and for me, the game is divided sort of into two parts. Once you fall into that that water in the cave, you get this. You you go down into a scene at the bottom of the water, which shows you a glimpse of that car crash it's uh yeah it's it's, it's on the highway and mm -hmm. um is it like a hospital gurney just in the middle of the road yeah. well see that's one of the things where it's interesting if you play it multiple times because that's actually one of the randomized elements where sometimes you'll get just a hospital bed in the middle of the highway and other times you'll get a car crash in the middle of the oh, highway. okay yeah so uh it's not just the dialogue that's randomized it's actually the environment as well Hmm. And sometimes you'll come across different things like that that give you hints to what might be going mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, the two I've seen anyways are the hospital bed and the car crash. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if maybe there's more to it than that, but uh, those are the main ones, I think. Right. So what, um, what was your interpretation, Jamie, before we... Because uh, we were actually able to... Uh, we did some homework, and we were able to find some notes that uh, Dan Pinchbeck, he was the... Uh, the creative mind behind the arrestor he uh he wrote some notes to i think it must be a foreign language translator 
and these are these are so, things yeah. to sort of help the translation team um, retain as much of that spirit of the original. Yeah, the meaning. Yeah, uh, well, like the whole essence and vibe of the game. So before we get mm-hmm. into that, what did you get out of it? Um, I really, uh, I, I like the theory of Paul being the one that you're controlling and the, the narrator, but uh, I'm sort of leaning a little more towards it being Esther. Mm. Um, this is one of the theories I was reading up online, and I sort of feel like that fits a bit more with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, because it feels like, especially with the Dear Esther aspects, like the actual letters directed at her, that it could be that the narrator is sitting outside your hospital bed and that this whole island is a sort of coma-induced subconscious mm-hmm. world. And uh, as you're walking through the world, uh, you even notice these random sound effects that seem very unnatural. Wait, which is, yeah, no, no, I, it's, it's good that you bring that up because uh, at one mm-hmm. point, and he says, like, I don't know if this is what I'm truly experiencing or, or the result of, of being so doped up on painkillers. Yeah, there's mention of uh, uh, dopamine and uh, serotonin, uh, like the reactions in your head, and of course the alcohol and mm-hmm. everything. Uh, yeah, so the, it seems like it could be the sounds of the hospital room around mm-hmm. you that you're hearing through the coma, and they come across as these weird sound effects. Yeah, that's that's really and, interesting. But, um, yeah. Uh, but who's to say that our narrator isn't Paul, and that he, also involved in that be, car yeah. wreck, is in a coma, and this is his sorting out. See, I, I, I was yeah, under well. the assumption that that's what Jamie was describing. Well, see, I think that there's three characters. There's uh, Esther, uh, and also, um, Rich, you mentioned Donnelly mm-hmm. as a character separate from Esther. I think that Esther is Donnelly. I think uh, uh, Esther's full name is Esther Donnelly. Mm-hmm. And I think the narrator might be um, uh, Mr. Donnelly. Like, he's never named, but I think that might be who he is. Well, they, they combine the names at the end. Yeah. Um, a little bit, yeah. They, they say Esther Donnelly, and then it's Paul... Um, Jacobson. Jacobson. Yeah. yeah. Or Jacobson. Jacobson. That's how it's spelled, yeah. but... Yeah, and, but and, and there's a mention Jacobson. of Jacobson uh, mm-hmm. as well. There's, yeah, when, when um, we're sort of going into the uh, mythology of the hermit. Yeah, but see, the thing is, I think that that uh, sort of leads towards my theory a little more, because uh, it could be that maybe... Even though it sounds like the same voice, it could be multiple people sitting at the hospital bed, mm-hmm. and, and like different days they're visiting, and so you're getting different people's perspective right. because it does feel like that sometimes. Um, there's certain times where you get Paul referred to in the third person, and then there's other times where you get Esther referred to in the third person, and sometimes uh, yeah, like these other people. yeah, definitely and, when when the monologue is, when the monologue opens with the dear Esther, um, I think it's slightly easier to decipher who is actually mm-hmm. speaking um yeah but any other time it's a little bit more vague. yeah because mm-hmm. a lot of these they they kind of start halfway through a memory or whatever um yeah. and and it, yeah it's really stream of consciousness yeah so like but it feels like it could be someone just uh, sitting there and almost confessing their sins to the person who's dying in front of them could be yeah no that's uh yeah quite possible uh, and just sort of uh, like talking about their daily mm-hmm. life to feel uh like because a lot of times people think that someone in a coma can still hear them and, and so they'll sit there and just talk yeah yeah um, and so that's what it feels like when you listen to the narrative mm-hmm. i mean let's just let's go over the uh the notes that uh the creative staff you know have 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 left and you know quite generously have uh, released to the public um so there's some odd grammar in the dear Esther script 
this prevents uh, quite a challenge for you, um, the translator. So yeah, uh, I, I, there was like a lot of inconsistency with uh, with verb tenses and stuff like that. Um, it didn't throw me off too much. Uh, like my initial playthrough, I kind of thought, oh, you know, it's just you know being poetic and and wordy, right? Um, mm -hmm. So number two. Another thing to watch for is collapsing symbols. Often a symbol or metaphor will be set up to be collapsed either later or in the voiceover, usually by shifting the object being talked about into something completely different or, contra or contradicted by a later voiceover. I definitely noticed that some of it uh, seems to not make sense yeah, you know, uh, in certain ways. Uh -huh. um, in the first case, try to follow the logic of metaphor. Rather than trying to accurately tie it to the object, if that makes sense, things quite deliberately don't add up as often as not. Again, this is part of the process of giving the voice-overs that slightly weird otherworldly sense. In the second case, the key is to not try and look backwards or forwards from each particular clue. Don't try to resolve contradictions and don't rely on previous clues for understanding or meaning. Part of the way Dear Esther is written is the idea that everything is true in the moment, but the moment is all there is. In other mm. words, the narrator is completely unreliable, but utterly believes in everything that everything in the instant it is being said. And I, I, I think that is what complicates things. It does, but at the same time I feel like uh, the... Uh... Uh, the story is open enough to be interpreted mm -hmm. a little differently. Like it doesn't necessarily have to follow exactly what the author is originally intended. Mm -hmm. uh, it it does feel like it's very open to um, the, the reader's uh, interpretation, not so much the uh, uh, the author. Yeah, and, and uh, like he has this idea and has uh, of where he's going with it, uh, but in some uh, Q and A sessions with the developers and uh, community, I've noticed that, and they said that uh, they didn't even think of half the things that the community came up with, right. and that they really love the ideas that the community has mm -hmm. come up with. Um, like um, linking back to Rich's comment about the biblical passages, uh, Pinchbeck writes another thing that might help is thinking of the whole thing as a kind of prayer or spell. One thing that is more evident in the early stages of the mod was the idea that the narrator was literally trying to cast a spell to bring Esther back from the dead. There were lots mm. more magical symbols and numerology in the game. Most of that stuff went, but there's a, there's a quiet idea buried in there about this. All the 21 stuff. Um, maybe means 22, I don't know. Some of the voiceovers have a more explicit sense of this, but many of them do have the idea of an invisible audience. He's not always talking to himself, uh, but I don't want to go through this saying, now he's talking to Esther, now he's talking to Paul. It's not that explicit, but you hopefully get the idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which basically brings uh, begs a question, who is a narrator? And um, that was deliberately vague. He has no personality, no reality, um, or he has several of, of those. Yeah, uh, which is what I kind of lean towards a little more. I feel like uh, he could be multiple people, yeah, um, uh, even though it's actually sounding like the same mm, person. Pinchbeck says, don't try and capture a sense of person. It's important that this is evasive. You might notice a new thread is appearing in the D script, because um, every... 
as uh, as Jamie has mentioned, every landmark that you uh, approach, you will trigger a randomly generated uh, monologue for that area. Um, mm -hmm. it, it imitates that the narrator is actually Paul and caused the crash himself. We need to keep this soft and subtle. Yeah, so that's what the, uh, they're leaning towards, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, we all sort of figured out that it was Paul who caused the crash. Uh, mm -hmm. But still, who was Paul? That's that's very vague. It's like the the setting. This island is a character in and of itself, um, mm -hmm. which which leads to why there's uh, two main camps uh, of people who who play this game, and there are the the literal interpreter or people who interpret it literally, and that is uh, following the wife. Uh, sir, following the death of his wife in a car crash, the narrator has a nervous breakdown and strands, strands himself on a deserted Hebridean island. The isolation, starvation, and an infection following a serious in, uh, injury causes his mind to deteriorate further. That was the, um, the yes. cave sequence we discussed. And right. he begins to hallucinate, life. projecting symbols, figures, and meanings onto the environment. That would be like a... There's a golden ratio drawn on the sand somewhere. There's all the uh, biblical verses written on the wall. Uh, Chemistry and electrical diagrams. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Driven mad with pain and grief, he begins to believe that the only route to redemption is to commit suicide by climbing and throwing himself off the radio mast at the summit of the island, transmitting the story of Esther's death to the world. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of feel like I'm in a bit of a in between camp there because I, I do feel like it's uh husband uh, talking to the wife either through prayer or uh in the hospital bed idea but i don't quite take it that literally to send, see that it's a real island mm -hmm. um i do feel like it uh it seems like it could have been a real place that maybe they visited and just recreated in their mind but i don't think in the moment that it's a real place well it, it's a very um northern uk type environment mm -hmm. i i did look it up and uh, it is a real place in the real world like the hebridean uh, islands do exist mm -hmm. but uh, it's it, like i said it feels like something that they could have visited and it's just a triggered memory of the location right, right. yeah right that they've recreated in their mind i agree and where it really steps away from being a normal island i think is the cave scene uh where everything yeah, for sure you know gets a little uh, i mean the colors get a little more psychedelic you know yeah, it brightens up really psychedelic and glowy mm -hmm. right right and you know that to me that is as i said before sort of the break between the two halves of the island and also the sort of the break of in the game psyche is that what you're yeah. saying yeah I, I i do I, I feel like the first and my interpretation of this is that i think this is sort of how you deal with grief okay um, this game is about that as far as, at first, you're angry. You're trying to put it all together. And that's the Donnelly aspect. Mm -hmm. That's the Donnelly persona. And as you go through the cave, you know, this is the, the edging toward making your way to work it out. You go through the cave. He becomes not Saul or Donnelly anymore, but he becomes Paul. Right. He's seen the light on the way to Damascus. Mm -hmm. And as you climb up the beacon, the hill to the beacon, you see the words Damascus spray-painted on the side of the rocks. Yeah, yeah, that's like right by that gate into the uh, into the radio tower area. Right. I, I feel mm -hmm. like the the second half of the island is the the healing aspect. And though you're climbing up the tower and you're jumping off, and it feels like 
it is a suicide attempt, you don't crash on the rocks. No, you don't. You glide and you fly away, and I think it's less about suicide. I feel like it's like you feel that that might be the only way out, but that, you know, you've you've sort of made your way to this this sort of ending and yeah, it's, this reality it's quite, and, and the ability uh, quite to eloquent, uh, eloquent and uh, right. quite beautiful in, in its own way. The paper boats, mm, yeah. you know, and such. Yeah. And, you, you know, you're, you're kind of bringing about these happier times in life on the second side of the cave, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the happier memories of, you know, Esther. And I think this is, uh, you know, this is sort of, to me, it felt like sort of just a game about, going through a horrible experience and sort of coping with it subconsciously. Right. That's well, That was coping. my take on the game. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm right, but that's how I, you know, that's just what I, that's what I glean from. That, that kind of ties into the second interpretation, which uh, mm-hmm. once again begins with uh, the narrator being the um, instigator of the car crash. But the island is a recreation of his mind, or, or, or perhaps it's this place beyond our physical realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, in the notes, uh, the narrator starts to openly voice his eroded confidence in the reality of the world, and the unnatural symbols and events become apparent in the landscape. As we descend into the caves, it becomes clear that this is not a real space at all, and the island appears to be some form of coma dream, a a visualization of the destroyed interior landscape of the narrator's mind. In this case, everything begins to take an, an altered significance. The act of throwing himself from a radio tower doesn't mean redemption or waking from a coma or an act of healing or closure. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like the, uh, the final area does seem like a bit of uh, accepting yeah. what's happened. Mm-hmm. And, and even um, we can't overlook the, the voice actor's... Um, portrayal of that last scene it instead of being rather monotone and um melancholic like it's been for the most part it gets uh he he becomes a little aggressive towards the end very emotional yeah emotional um and then at the end he he does sound happy Mm -hmm. yeah content at least yeah i i don't know that i agree with whoever you know you were using saying that there isn't something sorted out in the end i I do feel like there is sort of there is something sorted out and you know some sort of you know coping mechanism or some way to to deal with this or you know if it's you know if you're using the sort of the coma interpretation that there is an awakening from this Mm -hmm. um but I, i do feel like there is some sort of you know quote awakening you know at the end of this game right see like um I, I totally um, understand what you're saying. Uh, I just kind of take it in, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And um, it's that whether the narrator has died in the accident or after is irrelevant. It's just that he is now dead and in the afterlife in, in, in purgatory. Because I, I think the concept of purgatory is that uh, if you are a complete saint, you'll be raised up into heaven. And, uh, if, if you're sort of more human uh with you know we have your faults but you also have your redeeming qualities you Mm -hmm. end up in purgatory and that's your time and place to atone and make sense of your life 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's an accurate representation of what this all mm-hmm. is, really. And and at the end, climbing the radio tower and, and finally taking that leap of faith was the narrator finally coming to terms with what happened uh, in his life, what, what he did, um, and he can move on now. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, that I found interesting was... Uh, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel effect with the radio beacon. Uh, did you guys sort of catch on to that? Uh, where uh, you always see this blinking light in the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's it's visible from the moment the game starts. Yeah, and it seems like that's sort of uh, what you're uh, doing there. You're going towards the end of the tunnel, and it's like they always say, don't go to the light. Uh, once you get to the light, uh, that's sort of it. it your life's over. Well, and, at the end... Uh, you've accepted uh, the end. Um... You know, despite it being a really, you know, pretty ending uh, visually, it ends in darkness. Um, mm-hmm. The the ending is just pure darkness with some like atmospheric beach or wave noises, and the nar- narrator whispering, "Come back." Yeah, which is something I actually want to touch on. That kind of again leads towards the theory I was endorsing was uh, that every time you go into the water, uh, it has this, uh, the narrator saying, come back, come back, Esther, Esther. And it feels like when uh, there's someone sitting by your hospital bed and they've noticed something wrong, like your maybe heart rate plummets or something mm-hmm. like that, and uh, they're trying to encourage you to hold on to life. And every time you hear them say that, uh, you do come back. But then at the end, they do the same thing and you don't come back. And if you listen carefully, you can actually hear a hospital like ECG monitor uh, do the flatline sound yeah. and you can hear the heartbeat slowing down so it really seems to endorse the whole hospital bed well, theory there and then also these you know kind of going along with my theory i mean these could be sounds that are embedded in the subconscious right you know, these, are, these are yeah. sounds that that um you know trying to deal with this horrible incident um these are the sounds that you're seeing esther in this hospital bed these are the sounds that are associated with that you know, in the subconscious and the things that are sort of, you know, still going off in his mind, Mm -hmm. you know, driving him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the beauty of this game. And what I, what I really liked about it, the dialogue is is very fragmented and it it leaves it open to various amounts of interpretation. But I, I feel like there's certain things, you know, like the biblical aspects of this, Damascus, Paul, Esther, those are things that can't be ignored. You know, there are certain things mm-hmm. that can't be ignored, but there are things, you know, like, you know, like whether this is Esther or, you know, Paul or the subconscious purgatory, you know, those are, those are all left up to the, um, the reader, mm-hmm. if you will. But there are certain things that are, you know, very established and concrete and, and things you have to put together or, or at least try to make sense of. To come up with an interpretation right. for this game. Um, it's a very biblical game, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, and maybe that's to help flesh out this narrator, um, because he, like, um, I think one of the lines is he says, "We are not like Lot's wife," uh, and and this Damascus stuff. Um, well, Lot's wife was the one who turned around, looked back towards Sodom or Gomorrah, and turned into a pillar of salt. Correct. That's right. Yeah. No, you're okay, right. So. In essence, this narrator's saying, "Don't look back. Keep moving forward." Mm-hmm. And in that way, you know, move toward the light, if you will. You know, move forward. 
So. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys got this piece of dialogue, but I think it was a common one uh, near the beginning. And uh, the narrator mentions that he goes to visit Paul today. And uh, he says, uh, he says, my Damascus, uh, a small flat in uh, Wolverhampton, I think mm-hmm. it is. And uh, he's just sort of talking about how uh, his journey is leading up to this meeting with Paul and confronting him over the accident, I uh, suppose is what yeah, he's trying to maybe. say. Yeah, maybe. Part of the significance of that monologue is that it juxtaposes something very bland and ordinary, um, which is like the suburban um, notion of of, uh, of, uh, of a semi-detached in Wolverhampton, which is, is, is a largely suburban city, uh, beside something as grandiose as um, uh, Damascus. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's it's that um, you know putting something really normal right up beside something biblical, extraordinary, right? And and yeah. you know anything to 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 a devout believer, you know, a, a biblical aspect will have a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. So there's one thing that I wanted to mention that doesn't really fit anywhere. It's not too much of a story element, but one thing I found interesting is that uh, I looked it up and there's this chemical process called esterification and it's the mixing of carboxylic acid and alcohol and uh, it creates uh, these things called esters and carboxylic acid is apparently a uh, component of uh, brake fluid. So I thought that was really interesting that this process esterification like sort of esters are created by uh, the brake fluids and the alcohol. It uh, kind of implied to me that maybe ester herself wasn't actually real. Uh, because uh, ester is being created by the process of the accident. Were you able to find um, what an ester is in some kind of like medical journal, dictionary, whatever? Um, it's a chemical thing. I think it's sort of like a, a component of other things. Uh, let's see here. Uh, while you look that up, um, that could be a connection to there is some quote about alcohol and kidney stones. Right, yeah, that's a common theme throughout. There's a few uh, monologues that include kidney stones. Uh, yeah, those were pretty key. There was even one that mentioned that uh, the island was created by these stones or something like that, uh, too, which could be another thing, maybe. Uh, the whole situation is something related to the uh, infection mm-hmm. with the kidney stones, maybe. Because there's worth, uh, one line, actually, now that I think about it, where he said something along the lines of the infection being not just of the flesh. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But you know, that could just be his the uh, eroding of his of his mind. Hmm. What did you guys think of first the carving of white lines into the rock face? Because uh, I think the line was when somebody had recently died or or had given up the will to live, white lines would be carved into the stone. Yeah, to remember them. Yeah, by. and I think. The narrator says something that he will not have any lines. I can't remember exactly what he says, unless maybe you got a different uh, variation on the dialogue than I did. But one thing I do know is that near the very end, you can actually see white lines of its own. They're much more erratic and uh, crisscrossing each other. But uh, the cliff face below the aerial has uh, many white lines mm-hmm. on it. They don't seem to fit in with any of the other diagrams you've seen before. Right. So it almost seems like he's accepted that. Right. That fate. Well, that uh, that apparently was an, a thing that was ritualistically done, 
we can probably link to that to that article. But uh, that 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 was something that um, people would do, perhaps in the Hebridean um, area. And so my next uh, sort of ambiguous thing that I want to talk about is the the myth of the hermit, or the the significance of the hermit in this game. Yeah, I didn't entirely understand the hermit subplot there. I wasn't sure. Um, I know some of the theories talked about on the forums, but I hadn't picked up a whole lot about it myself. Um, some of the theories mentioned that maybe the narrator is the hermit, or uh, that uh, the narrator um, becomes like the hermit. Right. In uh, the sense that he kind of uh, follows the same lifestyle uh, on the island. Mm. But it wasn't very clear to me. I, I didn't entirely understand the significance mm. of that. Did either of you pick up anything with that? My uh, my take on it kind of was just yet you know with going along with my theory about this being a part of the subconscious was that the hermit was just another piece or a character of his subconscious, the quiet, yeah. um, you know, the lonely. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't take it much further than that. It seemed that that was sort of dedicated to the first half of the game. You mm -hmm. didn't really hear much about the Hermit the second half of the game. Was the Hermit the one who had entered the caves before? I think so. I think that was the I idea. Think, yeah, maybe. Because um, at least what I gleaned from it all was this Hermit was perhaps um, a clue intentionally placed there to throw you off the trail of something. Possibly. But uh, there's also mention by the narrator of him taking the same trip multiple times. And it felt like he could have been the one who put the symbols uh, behind, even though he's describing them as if he wasn't. Well, yeah, which only... It's not... I don't know how to describe this, because the re-experiencing this uh, path and these thoughts and everything, it really validates both and any interpretation, hmm. right? And it's sort of like he will repeat these events until he can finally come to terms with what has happened and either wake up from his coma or, you know, move on to the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if any of you picked up on this as well. Um, this is something that I did not notice while um, watching the playthrough of the game, but something that I did find on several YouTube channels. Um, there are several ghosts in the game. Yeah, actually, I meant to uh, talk on that. Um, and uh, there are certain places where you see them kind of flash or walk across the screen, or they'll be on top of a cliff, or uh, the first house, one is sort of looking down through the roof. Mm -hmm. um, you just sort of get fake glimpses, and they just kind of wisp away. Mm -hmm. um, again, you know... I, you know, interpret this as pieces, again, of the subconscious. Guiding him? Or maybe guiding him, right, and, and leading him on. Maybe just mm -hmm. images of him. Yeah. It, it does look like a man each time. It yeah. doesn't appear to be yeah. Yeah. female. Or it could be characters uh, that he knows in his real life uh, that are being kind of superimposed on his subconscious here. Yeah. I wouldn't say that this game is a, a horror title as far as, you know, having the ghost... But I, I think, no. but I, I think, in the same vein as Gone Home, this game does give you a sort of uneasy feeling, you know, and it's that's true. It's sort of created in in part by the environment, and also created by the the dialogue. Well, the music I mean, too. This is, 
Yeah, yeah. The music yeah. that that uh, really uh, distant, desolate-sounding piano. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at the same time, uh, at the same time, it was so beautiful, but it was so dark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A little off topic, uh, but I just I really love the music. I uh, picked up the copy of the game on sale with uh, bundled with the soundtrack, and oh, cool. really glad I did. Um, but yeah, the ghosts, uh, those are definitely interesting. I knew about one of them uh, from playing myself. I had to look up the video to find the others, because I didn't even know there was more than one. Right. But I think the one that most people find is on the cliff overlooking the beach mm-hmm. in the final area. Yes. That one's pretty obvious, because it stands out against the sky, and it's right beside a candle, kind of on the edge of the cliff. It's not that hard to spot. Right. But like you said, most of the other ones, uh, they're just a very, very short glimpse, and often they're way off in the distance, too, and... Um, I think the only one that uh, kind of stands out a little bit uh, easy in another area is there's one in a cave that you can kind of see uh, blinking a light at you, mm-hmm. and like a lantern or something. Right. Oh, and isn't that one um, doing uh, Morse code? I think someone mentioned that in, in a Q&A with the developers, and uh, they were like, hey, that would have been a good idea. Too bad we didn't think of it. Oh. <laughs> I think they were saying that they didn't actually give any meaning to the blinks. It was just... A random blinking light to them. Well, I, I'm I'm happy that there are a lot of uh, you know smart, uh, inquisitive gamers out there. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I think this this is a type of game that lends itself to that type of gamer or someone who's you know less into getting to an ending and more interested in making sense of it all. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's no right answer to how this to how this game can be interpreted. It's it's interpreted however you want to interpret it and what feels right to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, yeah. it's it's very personal in that way. Right, it is, and that's to me that's what for me that's what made it my my favorite game of the month. You know, um, I I really really enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, yeah, it was a very literary game. Too. Yeah, yeah. But in saying that, something that I wanted to bring up, I say it was my favorite game, but is this a game? And I think that's something I brought up on the forums as well. Mm, this is a, definitely something we need to touch on. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, to me, it's not a game. There's not a lot of interacting. I think at the beginning of the game, you have a flashlight that you can use. You don't really interact except in movement. Mm-hmm. You move through mm-hmm. the game, and you get pieces of the game as you move through it. Other than that, you're not physically interacting with anything it's linear in the sense that you have to keep moving forward to get to a certain end but you don't have to really do anything other than that to make it to the end so i i question whether it's a game i think i said that it was more of a um i guess more of an an electronic visual sort of narrative mm-hmm. is how mm-hmm. it, it was like reading a book I mean, you know, it was oh, like okay. it was like reading was, something yeah. fragmented, like uh, like James Joyce or Virginia Woolf's, like the stream of conscience writers, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, reading something like you know, Portrait of the Artist or To the Lighthouse. I mean, it was, you know, it was very vague and open to interpretation, and you had to filter through a lot of um, mental nonsense, and that's why I kind of get the, you know, got the impression of the subconscious, you know, kind of mm-hmm. through my background yeah. and. Um, you know, that you have to filter through all that to put together some sort of, I don't want to say concrete, but semi, semi, uh, solid narrative. 
you know? Yeah, something to explain what's actually going on. Right. Mm-hmm. I think um, even in the thread, uh, I, I wasn't saying when you play Dear Esther. I think I was saying when you experience this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because this, this game uh, really for me was an experience. Um, and in, I, I like... Uh, I, I, I'm curious to, uh, for you to elaborate on why you found this very much like a, like a novel. But uh, my interpretation of its presentation was that I could really see this as um, like a stage performance. Um, you know, mm, having mm. somebody reading or, or, or reciting dialogue with mm-hmm. even the game footage playing in the background. Yeah, or even stage actors too. Yeah, yeah, I think um, fit for that. They should definitely, you know, package this and you know, for the stage and put it on a tour, and I will go see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, I I do agree with what both of you are saying. Um, uh, it's missing a lot of key elements, but at the same time, I, I do feel like uh, it has just enough to be considered a game. Well, it has a loose state, right? It, yeah, it's kind of an in, in-between media, um, but it does lean a little bit towards game, just enough to be categorized. Okay. Um, only, uh, I feel, because of its absence of other media's elements. Like, I, I wouldn't call it a movie because a movie is passive uh, entirely, Um I wouldn't call it a book because the book is written words and this is uh, audio um, and visual. I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't entirely call it a game uh, because of the fact that it's missing some key interactive things, but it leans a little more towards the game because it does have most of the elements. And what would those be? It, it, well, it has the interactivity in the sense of the exploring the island, even if it is linear, mm-hmm. but. It also has the fact that uh, you can miss certain dialogue, not in the randomized sense, but in the not going to certain areas right. of the map. Uh, like, I know next to that uh, beach jetty in the second uh, scene, I think it is, um, there's a little path off to the left of it where if you follow it, you'll have a little monologue about the uh, the boy out in the water. And if you don't go down that pathway, you won't get that monologue at all. Is that and there's the other areas just like the that beach too, where there's the golden ratio drawn into the sand? Um, no, you're thinking a little earlier in okay. the game. This is where there's the uh, the boat that's kind of beached there, and there's all the debris along the shore. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. During my playthrough, I kind of got lost in that uh, that area, and oh, okay. I, yeah, that part is a little bit confusing. Um, like I I went up and sort of explored around the boat, and then. If we're going to call the direction towards the boat north, I went west and sort okay. of did like a, a meandering switchback route up a hill. And I got a dialogue about, um, uh, like, you know, barnacles clinging to the side of a ship. And I, you oh, okay. Know, I think I might have actually missed that one. Um, either that or that's just one may- of the randomized maybe, elements. Maybe it's a randomly generated one. Um, maybe, yeah. Uh, but uh, my point is now that. Uh, even though it is overall linear, you're going to get the same story more or less every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are elements that are very unique uh, to every playthrough, and it's based entirely on where you walk. Even though the game is uh, limited in interactivity to only walking, um, your choice of where to walk does affect uh, what you get out of the story. Yeah, And I feel like, to me, that's enough reason to call it a game, because there is some sense of interactivity. Mm. Well, yeah, and, and I guess, you know, for something to be a game, you have to have 
an investment in you know the game itself and mm-hmm. and in this uh in dear esther you're you're rather invested in discovering what the heck is going on here yeah and i feel like that's the goal it's uh, there is an end um you're trying to uh, progress through the, uh, the game uh, there's sort of checkpoints too with the loading screens um and so it has that it has a goal it has music graphics they're not visuals. really um, it's not so much a goal as like like you said a checkpoint it's like yeah but it, it feels like it's something different than what you would call just something in a novel it's not exactly like a chapter it's more like something you come across even if it is something you have no real choice over mm-hmm. uh, it does feel like uh, you have to kind of find it yeah you do um but still like i i found those like transitioning between one area to the next i i didn't find that very gamey really it was just sort of mm. you know you're you're on this uh this path to get from point a to point b because there's nothing else you can do that's true and yeah like yeah. It, it had to be that way otherwise you wouldn't experience these um you know inner monologues and it's mm-hmm. very heavily dialogue driven yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, the movement, yeah. the movement, sure triggers the dialogue, but the dialogue is the overwhelming thing of importance here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what defines the game is the dialogue, not so much the, the moving around. Though it does, it does influence the different places that you that you come across. And the, yeah, you know, that's the, the only why I say it's just barely a game because uh, there's yeah. the chance of missing. Dialogue. Uh, like someone could, if they wanted to, more or less speedrun this game where they skip a lot of dialogue and just go for the shortest route. And uh, you can get uh, more to the story if you explore heavily, right. which is something that um, a novel doesn't have. Like uh, you go from page one to the end of the book and you get the same story every time, just different interpretations. But this one, uh, the amount that you explore affects the amount you get. Yeah. Which, to me, makes it lean a little more towards a game than other elements. But, like I said, it's very barely a game. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's kind of the beauty of it, right? Is that it It makes you... It kind of challenges this notion as well. Well, mm-hmm. then, if, um, if if you call Dearester just barely a game because you have to go and, and seek out these um, non-mandatory dialogue bits... Mm-hmm. Like uh, gone home. That's that's all gone home is, right? Yeah, true. But more interactive. You have to unlock. You have to put combinations into a locker. You have to find keys. You have to do things. You have to manipulate things. Yeah, to I mean, like there, there was move more... toward that goal. There's there's no manipulation. Yeah, at you, all. You do have to use that, like you know, problem solving component of your brain. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Gone Home is a little more clear cut. Uh, still uh, near the boundary uh, between game and not game, Absolutely. but it's more clear cut than Dear Esther is. Dear Esther is kind of just on the line. So, yeah. so like, yeah, I guess, uh, I, I guess what we're saying is that Dear Esther straddles that line you know, with one foot mm-hmm. in non-game and one foot in 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 the game camp, and um, one foot maybe like a an audiobook or a <laughs> uh, short story. Okay, I don't know what kind of what kind of people you see with three feet, but uh, um, no, no, gone home. Definitely was able to to squeak past that dividing line. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, 
All right. uh, I think that's yeah, probably I think, about uh, it. Uh, we got rather, rather intellectual, and, and we're sorry that... Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, we're not sorry that we were, you know, we, we put out our monocles and pipe tobacco. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just want to wrap up for this uh, by saying that uh, I feel like they could have gotten maybe better reviews and done a bit better uh, sales-wise if uh, they had added just a little bit more game elements to make it clear that this is a game. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not so much collectibles, but just a little bit more interactivity, even as much as opening doors and stuff like that, uh, I think would have helped them a bit. Uh, just for oh, those oh, who Opening doors, uh, say, um, even if it was something like slide, uh, move a rock so that you can enter this cave. Yeah, it, it would like feel that. It would feel um, tacked on, you know. It could, yeah, but I think it would uh, alleviate some of the complaints that a lot of people have, uh, that, the, the people that say this isn't the game and that they don't like it because of that. So, like, if if you have this thing where it's like, you know, turn off an electric fence before you can enter the radio tower, you know, that would make it a game. You know, it's like, well, that, that would, that would make that it more... Specific, but... What at least what I think you're saying is if if they added some more interactivity, let's just use that example of of de-electrifying a fence, that will make it more accessible to somebody as a gamer. I I think that would just uh, alleviate some complaints, uh, not so much accessibility, but um, yeah. just uh, making people. You have people, to understand, uh, not everybody's as smart as we are. <laughs> maybe that's it well i think i think it and what you're pointing to floyd is sort of like um you know a specific incident that in the grand scale in the grand scope of the game as we know it and what we've played what is the game you know de-electrifying an electric fence would be somewhat silly right yeah so well, or or even pushing a rock so you can enter a cave right 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 it would be it would be a whole lot you know, more interactivity, not just little random bits of it, I think is maybe what Jamie's trying to get at, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of yeah. interactivity. Because there's there's all types of gamers, and, and, and I know that there's a lot of, there are a lot of people who played this that absolutely hated it. And, and for that mm-hmm. reason, you know, you buy something that that you're told is a game, and then you get it, and you go through this, which, as you said, is more of an experience, and... There's a lot of people that aren't into that. There's right. a lot of people that yeah. would be just bewildered and just like, what did I just play? This made no sense. And would not take the time or bother to try to come up with some interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they paid for a game and they got something that was not exactly what they were expecting. Right, right. So I, I think, you know, that's it's definitely a valid point that, you know, more interactivity would make, you know, this more accessible to different people. But at what expense would that harm this game? That, that's what as, I'm trying as it to is. say. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you have a valid point, but uh, I think uh, what I was thinking of was a little, little more subtle than that. Uh, uh, the examples you made, I think I was thinking more along the lines of what Amnesia does with, say, reading journals. Uh, like you find a book and you just have to click on it and it pops up with some pages that you can turn to read a, a book or something like that or maybe um, a climbing mechanic like, or something like that maybe, to climb yeah. surface uh, just, of rocks or something you know yeah just little things like that uh, yeah. where it's uh, interacting but in a way that kind of fits with the game not something too tacked on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah something that fits with the style uh, like it could even be maybe carrying around the candle or something like that in the caves um, like I, I think 
anything that would be added on for the sake of interactivity would be unnecessary because it's not the, for example, the act of entering the cave that's important. It's what it represents. Hmm. Descending in, what, what descending into the cave means. What, what's so significant about it. Yeah. Yes, uh, the, the problem is that I'm trying to uh, bring up points to defend it for people who maybe don't already like it. And uh, when all three of us seem to like it to begin with, it's, <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. <laughs> we don't really see any reason to change it. No, no, but no, I'm no I, to I totally it understand. And uh, yeah. I'm just, you know, it's just sort of like, I, I know, like, as you said, we all liked it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, you're, you're, you're bringing up those, like, devil's advocate points. And, A little bit, yeah. You know, I, I'm I mean. just... I guess defending. I'm not shooting anything down. I, I'm just, yeah. you know. Yeah, and for myself, uh, I'm perfectly happy with the way it is. I just right. feel like uh, there's so many people who hate it that uh, maybe they wouldn't hate it if it was this way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of what I'm saying. Right, and um, this uh, when it when it finally is released, uh, it sh- we should definitely consider for a playthrough. Um, the Chinese Room, the developer of uh, The Arrestor, is working on... Um, I guess you could even say it's a spiritual successor called Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. I heard about and that, yeah. I don't know much about it. Though. In this um, game, which now we are using this term very <laughs> lightly, I guess, <laughs> you explore a, another sort of British um, town in the first person. But I guess um, the Chinese room developers have uh, listened to uh, to the people and, and they've put interactive moments where you can talk to people or you can uh you know pick up artifacts that will trigger not so much memories but it'll it'll trigger a reminiscing type scene of why that item is so important to whatever person like a vision kind of yeah yeah it's like fragile dreams the mementos in fragile dreams kind of um and you know, in, in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, um, I, what at least I took away from it is that you're trying to figure out what has happened to everybody. Why is everyone gone? So it retains that mysterious vibe that, uh, that they've created so well in, in Dearrestrid. And it seems like they've definitely mastered the art of um, creating something very unsettling, but not, like, evil. Yeah. So it's fragile dreams. It, it's fragile <laughs> dreams set in the UK in first person with no talking robot backpacks. <laughs> right. A little less Aww. animated, maybe too. Yeah, they they took uh, away those anime cutscenes, and now I don't like them, so I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Well, another game for those who are more horror fans. They're making the uh, sequel to Amnesia: a Machine for Pigs. So. If anyone's interested uh, in Dear Esther and Amnesia, they're continuing that. Amnesia looks like something that will really frighten me. <laughs> so. Oh, it, it very much would. It's something that frightens everyone. <laughs> um, uh, and it, it's the combination of uh, like interacting with uh, with the game world with a uh, mouse and keyboard is a little overwhelming for me, and couple mm. that with this really, um, you know dark and bloody environment yeah it's not not for everyone but uh, for those who like the gruesome horror uh, then uh, that's something the chinese room is working on as well 
Well, guys, um, I think we I think we all knew that the Dear Esther segment would be, um, uh, you know, having the, um, you know, not not so concrete storyline and plot. We we sort of knew that this would be the longest segment, um, and and we want to uh, thank everyone who's still listening right now and not asleep mm-hmm. as we <laughs> as we sort of break down the game. Give yourselves a pat on the back. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. As you know, you know, we really like to. At moments, you know, especially games like this, we really like to dig, dig really deep, you know, in, in these things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And just to wrap up the entire thing before we move on, I wanted to mention that for all four games, uh, I had a bit of a uh, connecting theme going across them. That I'm not sure if everyone noticed that the four games sort of progresses as a life story. Uh, Minecraft represents the childhood, and uh, with all the Lego-themed creativity, that fits pretty well, I think. And then Gone Home is clearly a coming-age teenage story. And then we've got The Stanley Parable, which is kind of a middle-aged mental breakdown (laughs) (laughs) of sorts. And uh, then uh, we've got Dear Esther, which is about death and purgatory and all that. So uh, I sort of thought that that uh, was a, a neat connecting flow between the games and that affected my choices for games this month a little bit yeah yeah i I did notice that because you told us (laughs) yeah (laughs) i notice everything that i am informed about before recording (laughs) yeah exactly but for the listeners who haven't been told this to their faces then (laughs) dear esther is later in life when your job and kids have completely drove you to drink and mad and you in yeah. tragically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. Dear uh, Esther, it's a spiritual successor to Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Jamie. It was a it was a really interesting month, and um, I know we have a lot of PC gamers on the site um, who you know are very interested in throwing out some uh, PC titles, and you know I hope we'll do it again. You know, sometime soon. Yeah, maybe with some bigger name titles that. Uh... Uh, don't quite scare people away with their odd, non-standard format. <laughs> yeah, it'd be really fun to do like a point-and-click month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Clicky month. Maybe a uh, missed series. <laughs> Merry Clickmas, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, I'd like to thank all the people who participated this month. So we've got Disposed Hero, Fleech, Highwind, Noise Redux, Single Banana, uh, Sir Psycho, and myself, Tech Wizard. All right. Well, thanks again to uh, everyone who participated. Thanks, Floyd, Jamie. Um, Great conversation on these games. And until next time. concludes episode five of the RF Generation Community Playthrough Wrap-Up. Thanks to everyone who participated in July's playthroughs. Please remember that you can find our discussion page on rfgeneration.com. We'd love to hear any additional thoughts you may have on these playthroughs, or maybe even some feedback on our podcast. Please join us next month as we discuss Beyond Oasis on the Genesis and Muramasa of the Demon Blade, released on the Wii and Vita. A very special thank you to Russ Lyman for joining us in our Chrono Trigger discussions. 
And a personal, very special shout out to RF Generation member Newpoil, who helped us tinker with a little of our editing this month. Again, thank you for listening to our show. Until next time, happy gaming.